Oh, yeah. Do you also knit scarves? Uh, you know, I haven't in a long time, but I do. Cool. Like, you know, since I was like 15. Wow. But yeah, but you know, yeah, I would maybe will this season. I'm getting really, really back into knitting hardcore. It's like really nice to have warm wool on my hands all the time, you know, like while I'm knitting. Yeah, are you, um, I don't think this is getting off topic, but we'll be done here soon. Uh, <laughs> question for you. Are you one of those people that will knit or crochet while you're actively like hanging out in a group yes. of people or watching a movie as a way to like engage your different part of your brain and ha- engage your hands? Yes. Okay. Yes. Cool. And Absolutely. I, when I first encountered that in my young adulthood, I remember thinking like, is this, do I, is this rude? Do I feel like this person's obnoxious? But <laughs> oh wow, interesting. Because like they're not being fully present. Yeah. Interesting. I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like I'm still being fully present when I do it. I agree. I, yeah. I, I think that's something that I eventually did learn, which yeah. is like, oh, it's not like they are looking at their screen or right. talking to me with their AirPods in their ears. Oh, that like that gets to me. Yeah. Yeah, that one's annoying. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, it's like doing, it's like drawing while you're talking to someone too. Like, I, I don't know. I like having. But even drawing, you're looking at your paper, not the person. Whereas it's true. folks that I've met who knit or crochet, they're like able to keep eye contact. Yeah. They're able to do it like yeah. second nature. So it's yeah. really neat. Yeah, it's like muscle cool. memory. Yeah. It is a fun time. Um, And I hope you're having a fun time listening to X-Ray FM, KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 FM. And in Nehalem, Wheeler, Manzanita, and Rockaway Beach at 91.7 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm radio is yours. I wonder if I will ever memorize that. I'm never going to because they're every right time. there <laughs> on, this, on our station window. Uh-huh. I, I don't know if you grew up with a cell phone or not, but I didn't have a cell phone until Mm-mm. I was 18. And so oh. I remembered like 15 people's phone numbers yeah and now i i can barely well i won't sell myself sh- too short listener i can remember my phone perfectly fine i will never forget mm-hmm. my own phone number yeah yay me Good but brain. can't remember any other phone number and i don't know how yeah. my brain used to be able to remember all these sequence of digits like it was nothing mm-hmm. but because we have these cheat sheets i will i am telling you i will I refuse to ever remember <laughs> the station ID <laughs> unless paper ceases yeah. to exist. It's funny how our brains work that way. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a good long-term memory for numbers for sure. Um, I got a phone when I was like 13. So yeah, I've, I've never had to really remember numbers except for I will always remember my dad's phone number and my phone number and my mom's phone number and my sister's phone number. So actually, yeah. That's really sweet. Yeah. Like the fact that you can still remember their digits even though you have an address book on your phone that yeah. can immediately access them is still pretty like impressive to me. Like what if your me. phone dies though? R- or you just lose it somewhere and like, or just throw it into a, an abyss because I've... Game over then. That's what happens. <laughs> it's game over. over. Right. If like <laughs> I, my phone battery is always so low mm-hmm. uh, c- constantly and so at any point, if I get into a car crash and my phone is finally dead, I don't know who to call. I don't remember anyone's number, <laughs> <laughs> right? And so, no, yeah. it, it is game over, and I'm sure people have experienced this, experienced this all the time. Yeah, totally. We don't have, like, telephone books to, to tell us where, where the numbers are at. Yep. <laughs> um, well, this seems like a good place to wrap up yeah. uh, for our Monday, December 4th radio show. Um, 
Come back it, next week. We're going to be talking to uh, some really fun people, mostly uh, a person from Left on 10th. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. We have another live on-air interview uh, in store for you next week, our usual Like It Is segment, as well as our bi-weekly PCC Heartsbeat segment. And as always, your two hosts, uh, Paul Kim and Hannah Francis. Uh, <laughs> That is not going to be a misstep next week. That was on purpose. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening today here on X-Ray. Uh, here's some music until we uh, take it over to Tom Hartman at 9.06. Have Thank a good week. Thanks so much for listening. See you all next week. In fact, in 2006, we had the trip booked, and my dad got sick and died that year. And in the fact, when the trip was supposed to happen, so we had to cancel it. So we finally found an open window, and, and we were on the one ship in the, in the Antarctic that will bring a tourist along that is actually doing peer-reviewable science. And I spent a lot of time in the lab um, looking at the microplastics. We've got a real crisis in Antarctica that has to do with both microplastics and climate. And I'll be filling you in on that as the weeks go on. But anyhow, that's where Louise and I were for the last two weeks, um, uh, just as an FYI. 
Also on the program today, in just a moment, Congressman Ro Khan is going to join us for, for an hour. In the second hour of our program, will this era's yellow journalism forecast disaster for the elections in 2024? Robert Reich is asking, why is it that uh, Trump is still polling so well? I, I think I have an answer that most people aren't talking about, and I'll share that with you. Um, also, Trump's solution to Obamacare <laughs> and, and DeSantis, he's going down the same road. We'll talk about that in the second hour. And it was COP28. Is it, is it a rigged ga game? We'll talk about that in the second hour of the program. In the third hour of the program, Vice President Harris gave a major speech yesterday in Doha, uh, excuse me, in Dubai. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about her as a, as, a, as a candidate for vice president. I think she's doing a great job, and I think she's, she really needs to be getting her profile higher. And this is a great first step. I'll tell you about that in the third hour. Also, was the Donald Trump White House selling pardons? The evidence is piling up uh, that he was uh, selling them for $2 million a pop. I'll share the details of that with you. So all that said, that's what's coming up in the program. I'm back and glad to be here with you. So let's start our National Progressive Town Hall meeting today. For the next hour, Congressman Ro Khan, the vice chair of the U.S. of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, representing the 17th District of California in the U.S. House, is author of his most recent book, Dignity in the Digital Age, which is a really a genuinely brilliant book, uh, as good as his previous book on trade. Kana.house.gov is his website, his Twitter handle, Rep. Ro Kana. Yes, I'm still calling it Twitter. Congressman, welcome back to the program. So uh, it's been a while since we talked. What's on your mind? Well, Tom, first of all, welcome back from Antarctica. Glad you had a, a good trip and you got to, to do that. Uh, on our plate, uh, one is going to be the funding for uh, Ukraine. Uh, we want to make sure that we get that through before the holidays. It really will be a travesty if we don't get uh, those resources. The White House has said that they literally are running out. 97% uh, has been spent. Uh, the second thing, of course, is uh, the war in the Middle East. Uh, I had said that Israel had a right to defend itself. I think they have diminished a lot of Hamas's capability uh, to prevent another attack, and now I'm uh, for a, a ceasefire, but we have to figure out uh, how we wind down uh, the violence and have two, two states side by side. Yeah, absolutely. And let me let me remind people, you're going to be here for the entire hour taking calls. I should have set that up. The, our telephone number is 202-808-9925 if you have questions for Congressman Khanna. Um, so uh, that, those are pretty weighty issues. Uh, any? Did you want to go into any depth on any of them, or you want to just hop right into calls? I can, but I, I often enjoy the calls and, and, and happy to get into more more details uh, on the calls. I, I, I will say with the, uh, the Ukraine spending, I don't think that's gotten as much attention as it should. I mean, obviously the Middle East should. There's a, a lot of perspectives on that. Happy to answer callers who have a perspective. But Ukraine, we literally uh, would snatch a, a defeat out of the jaws of victory if at this point, a year in, uh, we stopped funding them. And it's totally irresponsible what the House Republicans are doing, trying to have draconian language on uh, immigration uh, to, to condition Ukraine aid there. I mean, some of what they're talking about is getting rid of parole. Well, parole was used for Ukrainian uh, nationals who are leaving the war. Parole has been used by the president for Afghanis who had assisted the United States to have a two-year residence in the United States. It's been used by Republican and Democratic administrations. And the idea of uh, letting parole uh, go by the wayside uh, would be terrible. And, and you aren't going to get most mainstream 
Democrats supporting it. So we need a clean bill of, of, of aid uh, for Ukraine. Yeah, amen, amen. And, and it, I, I agree. I, I think it's astonishing that Republicans are lining up with Vladimir Putin. I just, I, I just it, it's astonishing to me. Um, my father, were he still alive, uh, who was a lifelong Republican, I mean, I, I, I was sitting with him when he died, and right across from him were his two favorite pictures, me shaking hands with Pope John Paul II and George W. Bush declaring mission impossible on the USS Abraham Lincoln. And, and he would be horrified by this party right now. I just, it's just astonishing. All right, let's pick up some phone calls. I didn't know you met the Pope. That's a pretty big deal. Oh, yeah, I, I wrote a book that uh, uh, apparently he or somebody very close to him read. And uh, this was back in 1998, I think it was. And we were living in Vermont. And this fax comes in that says uh, his, his Holiness Pope John Paul II would like to have a private audience with you. And uh, here's the date and time and blah, blah, blah. And it was like nine pages long, you know, and all these restrictions on how you have to behave there. And I thought it was a joke. <laughs> we went out, you know, but they, you know, they flew us over to, to London or to Rome. And, and uh, or I flew us over. And uh, we got a private uh, guided tour of the Vatican from one of his top assistants. And then we went up to Castle Gandolfo, and there was a concert that night. And then uh, I had a private meeting with him, uh, Louise and I, actually. Oh. So, yeah. Well, it, it was, I've uh, never been summoned by the Pope, so that's a pretty, uh, pretty <laughs> yeah. remarkable thing, especially Pope. John Paul who had played such a historical role. On, on, well, this on, was this was my book on on climate change. So you know, I mean, it was, which was kind of surprising. And but but in any case, that's that's kind of another story for another time. All right, let's pick up phone calls here for Congressman Ro Khanna, Vice Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, with us for the hour, taking your calls. Ziggy in Oneonta, New York. You are on the air with Representative Khanna. Hello, Congressman. My question Hi, has to do with. Hello. My question has to do with your bill to um, remove the name Medicare off of Medicare Advantage. And I have one suggested change. I also think you should make Medicare premiums free. And the reason for that is it will be a cost savings to the United States governments because you won't have to pay billions of dollars to the insurance company. And right now, when people try signing up for Medicare or Medicare Advantage, they are misled with the idea that, well, Medicare Advantage is free. Medicare costs me. And I think that would be a very good idea to add to your bill. So I would like to make that suggestion. Well, Ziggy, thank you for the call. I mean, uh, first of all, Medicare Advantage, we have heard horror stories after horror stories. People who get the plan because they like that it covers dental or vision or hearing, uh, the, the cost is slightly less, but then when they actually have a, a serious illness or they realize, or a family member has a serious illness, they realize that the doctors they need to go aren't covered, that the medical treatments that they need are getting denied that they need to file costly pre-authorization before they could get any single aspect of the treatment. And so what we're saying is don't call it Medicare. This is private insurance, and it has had terrible uh, impact on patients when they really need it. Now, your point about moving to a world where we don't have these premiums, that is Bernie Sanders' bill, which I support, a Medicare for all. And Bernie Sanders is very upfront. He says, look, people are going to have to pay some fee. Nothing is free in life. Uh, and that is part of the tax. Obviously, it'll be borne largely by the very wealthy and corporations, but everyone is going to have to pay something. But that is going to be much less cost than the exorbitant premiums that we're paying today. 
and we need to ultimately move to that system. Yeah, I think also Ziggy might have been referencing last week, might have been a couple of weeks ago, uh, it must have been because I talked about it on the air, uh, the Center for uh, Economic and Policy, whatever it is, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. The, yeah, the, the, I know the what think it is, tank. CPI. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, uh, no, this is CPP's, uh, in any case, they, anyway. did, they, they ran the numbers on that $140 billion that Medicare Advantage is overcharging the U.S. government, and that's enough right. to wipe out all of the cost for regular Medicare for everybody. In other words, if we just clawed back the money that the insurance companies are essentially stealing from us in Medicare Advantage overcharges, we could make Medicare itself free. Oh, that's interesting. So the, the 200 or so dollar monthly fee, it can uh, eliminate that. I mean, that, 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 that's an extraordinary point. I mean, uh, yes, I mean, yeah. the Medicare uh, Advantage is overcharging because they're basically saying people are sicker than they are. I mean, it's, it's yeah. fraud that, that, that's going on. And w whatever we should do, whether we put that money to, uh, to, to eliminate the fees or we put that money to expand Medicare so everyone can have Medicare in this country, uh, it shouldn't be going into the pockets of private insurance. Okay, uh, are we going into a break on the nonprofit side, Sean? Okay. Yeah, so we're we're going to hit a break here. Uh, Congressman, you're not going to hear the music. We've got a little technical problem here. But uh, we'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Ro Khanna, uh, the uh, vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, uh, representing the 17th District of California. It's our progressive town hall meeting here for the next hour. Stay with us. We've got 10 seconds before our automation system catches up with us here. So please bear with us. And Congressman, my apologies. Um, you know, it, it always seems like the gremlins sneak in on the weekends. And uh, here we are on Monday. But we should be hearing, I should be hearing some audio shortly. Okay. I still hear no audio. Oh, I'm live. Yeah, okay. So... Oh, we're back. You mean from the on the other side of the bumper? Okay. So, Congressman, all right. We'll continue taking the phone calls. I'm sorry, I got uh, Glenn in Kalama, Washington. You are on the air with Congressman uh, Congressman uh, Connor. Excuse me. Say, I want to ask you a question about AI uh, being used by legislators such as yourself to help write the Democratic platform or. In at least write uh, write up legislation to add to the to uh, bring up the subject of what to put on the democratic platform. You know the Heritage Foundation is already interviewing people to come to the federal government and you know the what is it Schedule F or something like that. So I was thinking, you know, we need to react real quick and uh, maybe use AI to write legislation, you know what the subjects could be? The ones that Tom brings up. There's at least 12 or 13 uh, so-called rants that are worth legislation, you know? Okay, Glenn, so, let's, get, let's get his thoughts on this. You know, Go ahead, Congressman. Well, Glenn, I'm reminded of the old Gandhi quote that the truth is as old as the mountains and hills. And so in terms of the democratic platform, I'm not sure for the actual principles we need AI to tell us that healthcare is a human right and we need Medicare for all, that we should have a living wage, that we shouldn't have a defense budget that goes to a trillion dollars, that people should have the opportunity to work. 
But I think where AI can help is let's say we have Medicare for all and we say, okay, tell us how we can convince people that Medicare for all is good, not just a healthcare for a human right. And AI may tell us, you should point out to folks that it's good for small business because it's gonna lower their payroll. You should point out it's good for entrepreneurship because more people will be able to have jobs. So I think we could use the tools of AI to help make the arguments, but the values are ones that we've had for a long time. You know, that, that, that the difference between values and 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 policy and positions and things is something that I think a lot of Democrats, the Republicans have been very good at promote at, at basically founding everything in in values. Um, Congressman Pocan has talked before about we need to be talking more about values. Yeah, because that's what moves people, right? I mean, when when, when you sit around, you're talking to your family, you. Your, in your daily life, uh, it's all about values. It's about uh, respecting each other, love, caring, compassion. It's rare you get into a policy conversation. And so I think we have to speak about what moves people. What moves people is not Medicare for all. What moves people is that everyone in this country should have a, a human right of health care, that we shouldn't allow, have people going into debt or uh, falling sick and not having treatment. So we start with that basic value, which you probably get 90% agreement. And then you say, this is why we need Medicare for all. Too often we skip that first step uh, and that's the step that really grabs people. I think, I think maybe it's because people just assume, you know, Democrats anyway, we, we understand our values so well we don't feel the need to proclaim them. But, you know, uh, Republicans have been talking about smaller government and God and stuff like that forever. You're right. I mean, I think it may be that we just assume that everyone should believe in the dignity of every uh, human being and everyone should believe that every person has the opportunity to pursue the American dream. And so we we get to the fast forward. Here's how we do it. Here are our plans. Uh, and we don't first say why those those plans matter and and and, and have that in language uh, uh, about America that yeah. people can identify. with. Amen. We'll be right back in 60 seconds. Missed my opening rant today? It's usually published over at HartmanReport.com where you can read it and share it with your friends for free. Check it out, HartmanReport.com. From Los Angeles to Columbia, South Carolina, from Birmingham, Alabama to Baltimore, universal basic income programs are chalking up proof after proof of their viability. Basically, just giving people, low-income people, poor people, somewhere between $500 and $1,500 a month, no strings attached, is lifting people out of poverty, getting them back on track, getting them into solid middle-class jobs, helping their children tremendously. This works. Now, we don't have to do UBI in the United States. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national health care program. Health expenses are whacking a lot of low-income people. We're the only country, developed country in the world that doesn't have free college education. Education expenses are whacking people. There's a lot we could do. We can subsidize housing. We can subsidize food. We do that with food stamps. We could expand it. There's a lot we could do to, to, to benefit from this. There's a whole report about that over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. And welcome back. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us for the hour, a national progressive town hall meeting, taking your calls. Tim in Shelby Township, Michigan. You're on the air with Representative Khanna. Welcome back, Tom and Congressman. Does the quorum prevent the Democratic caucus from going after the Republicans and stating outright 
that they're a party of Putin when they uh, are preventing additional aid to Ukraine. Tim, no, I think we can point out, as, as Tom did in the beginning of the show, that the policies that they are supporting uh, are basically pro-Putin. I mean, that th- this is not spin or sensationalism. You have a situation where Zelensky, despite all odds, has managed with his people, the Ukrainian people, to hold uh, Russia back. All experts thought within six weeks, eight weeks, uh, Putin would be in Kiev, and really the United States need to pre- needed to prevent them from going into uh, the Baltic states or Poland. Zelensky has done this, and he's done it in large part because of the aid, the weapons, the funding that we and the Europeans have given to him. And now you have the, uh, a large part of the Republican Party that does, wants to stop the funding, uh, and that will mean that Putin can continue to march into Ukraine. And if it's that simple. So stopping the funding is, by definition, supporting Putin's objectives. Morris in Long Beach, California. You're on there with Congressman Khanna. Hey, good morning to everybody within the sound of my voice. The weather is beautiful out here. Uh, Congressman, Congressman, congratulations on your wife's success with the stock market. Uh, Congressman, I got a compound question for you. Number one, President Carter once referred to Israel as being an apartheid country. Can I get a yes or a no in terms of do you agree with him? And also, have you heard about progressive candidates uh, having their funding cut short by Jewish communities uh, who speak out against what the Zionists are doing over there in Israel? And I'll take your comments off the air. And good morning, Tom. You're a bad man. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Morris. I appreciate it. Uh, first, in terms of my wife's investments are in a diversified trust, uh, she had the money before I uh, marriage and uh, fully complied with all ethics. And I believe the one championing the idea of banning stock trading in Congress would encourage people to look at my political reform bill. The uh, point about uh, President Carter, a great admiration for him. I worked for him at, at the Carter Center uh, on the Middle East specifically. What I am for is a two-state solution with uh, equal rights for uh, Palestinians, equal rights in the state, and equal rights for uh, Arab uh, Israelis. And we need to work to, towards that. Uh, and then the last point, uh, you know, I, I don't think someone uh, who speaks out for uh, for Palestinian rights or for uh, Israel's right to, 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 to hold Hamas perpetrators accountable, that uh, what we shouldn't have is super PAC money or large money come in uh, to Democratic primaries from any source. Uh, that's uh, distorting the political process. I don't take PAC money. I don't have a super PAC. We should, as a Democratic Party, say no super PAC money of any kind. Steve in Park Ridge, Illinois. You're on the air with Representative Connor. We just have about a minute to the break, Steve, if you got a quick one. Yes. First, I want to give a shout out to the Progressive Democrat Caucus. Congressman uh, uh, Khan, I've gotten to know Jan Schakowsky, and she's such a wonderful person. We need more people like you, too, in, in Congress. My, my topic is Project 2025. I think Democrats need to speak out about it and educate the electorate, because if a Donald Trump gets to be president again, it's basically going to give him unitary power. 
Well, say thank you, Jan is wonderful. We worked together a few years with Mark Pocan on the Medicare uh, naming bill where you shouldn't be able to use Medicare's name for Medicare Advantage. I, I agree with you that we have to be focused on 2025. One of the things I've said is, uh, obviously I still believe that the president is gonna win and I we can go into why, uh, but we have to be prepared for the worst case scenario and we need to legislate to make sure that the Insurrection Act can't be abused. I'll tell you one thing, we need to legislate for it. There is still a law in the 20, 2011 National Defense Authorization that Obama signed. He said his administration is not going to enforce this part of the law, but he signed it as a part of the big defense deal. And the law authorizes the military to go to any American citizen to their homes and basically detain them without trial if they are in any way uh, connected with terrorism. Now, most presidents wouldn't abuse it, but Donald Trump put. That, that's what we need to fix. Yeah, wow. That's incredible. We'll be right back with Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls in our National Progressive Town Hall meeting. Stay tuned. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This book in the Tom Hartman Book Club is All Politics is Local, Why Progressives Must Fight for the States by Megan Winter. And this is from the introduction. On February 20, 2018, six days after 17 people were shot and killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, Representative Keon McGee, a Democrat from Miami, stood on the floor of the Florida House of Representatives. Looking on from the gallery above were Parkland students who had traveled over 400 miles by bus to Tallahassee through the hope of persuading their state lawmakers to pass gun reforms in Florida. McGee asked the assembly to vote on a bill that would have banned assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith of Orlando, where a gunman had killed 49 and wounded another 53 people in the Pulse nightclub in 2016, had sponsored the bill whose chances would expire unless the House bent its usual protocol and acted right at that moment. The shooting at Parkland demands, demands extraordinary action, McGee told the Assembly. He was trying a technical procedural maneuver, one that might have worked in an alternate reality without partisan politics. But everyone who understood what it meant that Republicans held a supermajority in the Florida Assembly knew what would come next. Richard Corcoran, the Republican Speaker of the House, interrupted McGee. A few minutes later, the House voted on a party lines, 71 to 36, not to consider the assault weapons ban. In the gallery, students began to cry. On Twitter, student leader Emma Gonzalez wrote, the anger that I feel right now is indescribable. Something unusual was happening. With their eloquence, temerity, and rage, the Parkland students had seized national attention. Major news networks and papers dispatched reporters to cover their calls for change. That week in February, even before knowing that hundreds of thousands of students nationwide would soon walk out of their schools and through the streets, the American public paid attention to what was happening in Tallahassee, Florida. And yet from another advantage, the scene in the Florida Capitol that day was not at all unusual. In state houses, it is not uncommon to watch someone sit before a panel of elected officials hold up a placard of a dead child killed by opioids or lack of insurance or a gun and plead for the passage of a bill that will inevitably not move out of committee because it does not fit within the political calculus of the assembly's leadership. In those hearing rooms, ordinary people often share in breathtaking impotence. 
Three weeks before the Parkland students arrived in Tallahassee, for example, the Florida Senate Judiciary Committee discussed the Rule of Law Adherence Act, which would have required all local government officials, explicitly including employees of the state university system, to turn over immigration, information about immigrants to federal uh, immigration officials. The bill was similar to those shopped around the country by the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, an organization that since the 1970s has written experimental conservative state legislation. ALEC's corporate members included Geo Group, the largest provider of detention services for immigration and customs enforcement, ICE, and a major donor to Florida Republicans in Donald Trump's presidential campaign. In 2016, the federal government decided to stop contracting with private prisons because the Department of Justice investigation had found they were unsafe. But after Trump's inauguration in early 2017, Geo Group received $774 million worth of contracts to run federal prisons. On January 30th, 2018, the day that the Florida immigration bill was considered in Tallahassee, so many people showed up that the hearing room reached capacity. Muslim students and Latino farm workers and their teenage children who had traveled hours to testify against the bill were not allowed into the packed room. Expressionless, they watched the proceedings on a television mounted in a hallway as Florida Senator Aaron Bean stood at the podium and said that his bill means criminals will be kept off the streets. The bill did not advance in what counts as a victory, in part because in 2011, immigrant rights groups staged weeks-long protests in Tallahassee to oppose a bill modeled after the Arizona's 2010 law that allowed police officers to ask for immigration papers if they suspected someone was undocumented. The Florida legislature didn't pass a new aggressive anti-immigration law until 2019 when it gave the state the power to sue local law enforcement that refused to detain people according to orders from federal immigration officials. The next day, January 31st, Floridians concerned about sea level rise arrived in Tallahassee by the busload to ask their legislators to pass a raft of proactive climate change bills. Many were college students or recent graduates who had grown up along the coast and understood that the window of opportunity for stalling climate change was rapidly closing. During their lifetimes, they told me, their hometowns would be radically altered, if not sunken. By the end of the legislative session that March, none of the bills they wanted were passed. Even though just 10 years ago, it was all but mandatory for both Democrats and Republicans in Florida to at least make overtures about the need for proactive environmental laws. Similar scenes play out in hearing rooms across the country, usually unrecognized by the American public. Beneath the tumult of the Trump presidency, state lawmakers have largely kept their course. As Alex's own website explained in 2017, quote, state legislatures around the country have made significant progress passing bills on issues such as immigration, policing, and health care, even as Republicans in Congress and President Trump have struggled to make similar progress at the federal level, end of quote. After decades of state-based campaigns coordinated by libertarian and Republican operatives and disinvestment in the states, right-wing politicians have swept control of state houses. All politics is local. Did you know?
know that every weekday we send out an email before the show giving you all the topics coming up so you can be fully informed and ready to interact with our program? Or that after the show we send out Sue's Stack, a list of every topic I've discussed along with clickable hot links to every source of information I've shared with you on the air? It's all completely free and available over at tom.tv, T-H-O-M TV. Check it out. 34 minutes past the hour, Congressman, Congressman Ro Khanna is with us for the hour, taking your calls in a National Progressive Town Hall meeting. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Pearson in Lamarck, Texas, you're on the air with Representative Khanna. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Given that it took us about 11, 12 months to expel Georgia Santos from the United States House of Representatives, uh, that, thing, that sends a different message, a more powerful message when we expel as opposed to letting someone like that stay in office and write out their term. Likewise, I would like for the Democratic Party party campaign every single day at every opportunity, pressure, embarrassment, cajole, whatever, even blackmail, uh, those leaders within the, Demo within the Republican Party to work on expelling Marjorie Trader Taylor and Sarah Palin want to be out of Colorado in October to start off with. They've got to clean dead wood, and we got to make them do it. Okay. Do you agree or disagree? Well, look, I voted to expel uh, George Santos. It was a, a, an important vote. I agree with you. It should have been done uh, a long time ago. Uh, there was not enough pressure on Republicans. Uh, I'm not for expelling people without some due process. And in this case, I felt comfortable because there was an extensive ethics investigation, and the report was pretty obvious uh, of his guilt. Uh, but for other members of Congress, if uh, uh, before I would vote to expel someone, I would want them to have basic due process. Tim in Aloha, Oregon, you're on the air with Congressman Congressman Kana. Yeah, well, I'd like to thank you for the work, for both the work you guys are doing. You know, I'm a pretty uh, consistent listener, and a uh, uh, couple of things. What's the most one of the most relevant things right now is the youth vote in this country, and a lot of people really don't understand what's going on. So, what needs to be done? We got to get uh, Pocon out there with Stacey Abrams and Ensley and Newsom and O'Rourke and Buttigieg, and get them out to talk to the 18 to 30 year olds. It's one of the key elements, I think, to determining the future of this country. You know, there's no question about it. And then there's um, one simple statement I think sums up the kind of the cultural history of uh, not us but most of the world. It said this was a quote from Thomas Gray in 1742, a uh, an English poet. He said, "Where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise." And Jefferson followed that up some years later. He said, "If ignorance." is bliss. Why aren't more people happy? I, that pretty much sums up what's going on in society. You know? And uh, one other thing, I guess so you're, you're familiar you're, with your the Your question, Congressman, for, for, for the Congressman, Tim? Yeah. Um, uh, why, why aren't we getting more uh, Democrats of significant power out into the, out the, the, the political system right now? Thank you. Well, I agree with you on the young person's vote. I also agree with you. We need more surrogates. But it's not just about surrogates. Ultimately, these young people care about policy. We should never have approved the Willow Project. Uh, we should never have approved the uh, Mountain Valley Pipeline. That really hurt with climate activists who don't want new fossil fuel infrastructure. And so we need to do something bold. Uh, the administration should say on line five that they're not going to 
uh, allow that to continue in Michigan. Governor Whitmer is opposed to it. Or the CP2 terminals, the LNG export terminals in Louisiana. Uh, Jennifer Granholm, Secretary Granholm can say, no, we're not going to do that in climate emissions. I think we need bold climate policy uh, in order to get these young people back. Mark in Long Beach, California, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Good morning, Congressman Khanna. Can you hear me okay? I can, Mark. Okay, I've got a question for you. Uh, I'm the same age as Tom. I have a Medicare Advantage plan called SCAN. Have you ever heard of them? S-C-A-N? I, I have not. Interesting name. Yeah, S-C-A-N. I've been with them since 2017 when I was 65. Well, anyway, uh, in 2022, they became a Medicare Advantage. It used to be just plain Medicare. 125 was added to my Social Security in 2022. In 2023, it's down to 110. In 2024, I was told it's going to be 8650. My two questions are, why is it that Medicare Advantage plans contribute money to your Social Security? And after listening to Tom Hartman for, for a couple of years, who I treasure, he's always saying about it's best to be out of a um, Medicare Advantage. Well, I called around and called around, and I've been told that in the state of California, you cannot get anything. It has to be a Medicare Advantage. Am I wrong? Well, you, you need to make sure that you're getting misinformation, but you can be on Medicare. And uh, this is a challenge for a lot of people in your situation that they feel like the option is Medicare Advantage because of misinformation. And then they realize that the, the premiums are going up or uh, they aren't getting certain things covered. And what our bill, Mark Pocan, my and Jan Tchaikovsky's bill is doing is saying, give people a choice. Don't confuse them. Don't call private insurance Medicare Advantage. Don't use the Medicare term. Well, now you've got uh, Joe Namath on TV saying, call the Medicare hotline, the Medicare information hotline, as if it's like the official government hotline. And if you call that number, you're talking to a, to a person who earns a $1,000 commission if they can sell you a, a Medicare Advantage plan. And they're, of course they're going to say, no, you can't get real Medicare. Well, all we offer is Medicare Advantage. Uh, the thing to do is to call the actual office, you know, Social Security uh, Division of Medicare Services, right? Exactly. I didn't know about this hotline. I mean, that's a really uh, terrible. And, and you really have deception going on uh, in the country. And the Medicare Advantage plans are ripping off taxpayers, as Tom pointed out, $140 billion. And at the same time, what to me is the most heartbreaking is patients who get a complication, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and then are told they can't go see the doctors they need to or certain medicines they need aren't covered. Yeah, yeah, or they get surprise billings and things. Sharon in Fort Bragg, California, you are on the air with Representative Kana. Hi, Congressman Kana. Um, I, Hi. First, I agree with you about taking the Medicare name out of the Advantage plans. But also, I don't know if you've ever read the book that we get every year, uh, Medicare and You. In there, I have, they have you seen it? I have not, but tell me, please. Okay, they, if you get a copy of that book, because in there they advertise Medicare Advantage plans side by side with Medicare and show you that it's more advantageous for you to get the Medicare Advantage plan. So the book that's being produced by the government 
is telling you to buy Medicare Advantage plans. This is absolutely true, by the way, Congressman. I get it, too. Everybody over 65 gets this book every year, and it lists, it's basically an, a government paid for it. It's, it's mailed out by the Center for Medicare Services, um, and it reflects what's on their website, by the way. And it basically is a massive promotion for Medicare Advantage, period, full exactly. stop. And it wow. does not talk about any of the complaints about Medicare Advantage. And it's it just, produced by the government. That's right. Well, I'm going to get. I'm going to have them bring them out of those books to my office, and I. Uh, that's outrageous, and that doesn't require congressional le legislation. That can be just uh, executive action that uh, requires CMS to be more honest uh, about how they're reporting Medicare Advantage, uh, the, the pros and the cons. So uh, uh, thank you for raising that. That's why I love being on the show, Tom. I always learn something. Amen. Andrea in Boone, North Carolina, you are on the air with Congressman Kana. Hello, thanks so much for taking my call. Um, something that really, it's really puzzled to me is the fact that even though Joe Biden is such a successful president, and I do believe things are doing very well, um, why do you think people don't feel this way? Um, why do you think people don't think the, the economy is doing well? And why, how do you, how, how can Democrats change their message? Um, because I, I don't think things like the message is really coming across very well. Uh, and it, it is really concerning me a lot. Thank you, Andrea. Andrea, this is a big challenge. I mean, uh, look, the working and middle class in this country has been devastated over the last 50 years. You have uh, people uh, who... Uh, are struggling to, to pay basic expenses. Uh, many of the Americans have uh, credit card debt. Uh, the interest rates then are higher on that debt. Very few people and, who are young can afford to buy a house. Many see their rent going up. They're drowning in student debt. Some folks have medical debt. And so we can't just have a triumphalist message saying, look, we passed chips, we passed infrastructure, we passed the American Rescue Plan. Uh, things are going great. We have to meet people where they're at, which is to say the working and middle class of this country has not had a fair shot. But you know what we've done in the past three years is transform economic policy finally to care about them uh, to, as opposed to just having tax cuts to the very wealthy. And if we give President Biden four more years, we are going to get uh, universal child care. We are going to put more money in the pockets of working families with the uh, child tax credit. We are uh, going to help reduce the burden of medical debt and student debt. And on the other side, they're going to just give these massive tax cuts to the wealthy. That's what Trump did. But I, I do think we have to meet people where they're at. David in Columbus, Ohio, listening to WGRN. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hello, Congressman. I have a question um, concerning nuclear power. There's an ongoing disaster in um, Ohio, uh, Portsmouth uh, enrichment plant that's being decommissioned. But are you familiar with that? And I, I think um, the uh, statistics speak for themselves as far as the number of cancer deaths and uh, other problems down there. And uh, it just doesn't seem like the federal government's being responsive. David, I'm not aware of that. I will look that up, and uh, I think you should contact your the local member of Congress there as well, but thank you for raising that. Les, in uh, Winnemucca, Nevada, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Uh, yeah, thank you for taking my call. 
Congressman, thank you for doing this. Uh, it's a public service. It's a good thing you're doing. Uh, I you. wanted to ask, is, is, is it possible for the federal government to go into green energy, making energy, and have the government have its own, where they can go and put windmills in these? Uh, here in Nevada, we've got mountain ranges run north and south, and they've all got, like, wind tunnel places in them. That would be perfect for wind farms where the wind just blows all the time. And, and, uh, I mean, we've got all this public land. Why aren't we using it to make power uh, and make the, make the power companies catch up and get away from this crap nuclear energy and oil burning and all that? We need to go all green. Thank you, Les. Well, that's, I agree with you that we should be using uh, federal land where it makes sense to uh, help build solar, help build uh, wind. Uh, the IRA Inflation Reduction Act, it incentivizes it in big ways, but maybe in certain places where there is a lot of public land, it makes sense for the government to be part of the uh, energy generation. So we need an all-of-the-above approach when it comes to renewable energy. and. Uh, the price has fallen, by the way. The price of solar and wind today is less than the price of nuclear, which is why the real reason why you don't have an incentive for no, new nuclear plants. And we need to go all in on, on, on solar and wind and uh, hydro geothermal energy. Congressman, we just have 30 seconds. Is there any possibility of a federal pushback against state laws that make it more difficult to put solar on your home that require uh, you know, big fees or allow utilities to basically screw you when you try to do this? Yes, I mean, uh, we, we need to have federal preemption of those state laws. Right now, we haven't been able to do it. The IRA didn't have that. And so you have this situation where if a locality, a local government, a state government doesn't want to have uh, solar or wind, uh, they can make it very, very hard on the local utilities. Uh, and the IRA doesn't have much of an impact. But I do think we need federal law to, to preempt those kind of state and local laws. Yeah, it seems like a, a pretty big deal. It's 48 minutes past the hour. We're talking with Congressman Ro Khanna, Vice Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, taking your calls for the hour in a National Progressive Town Hall meeting. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Representative Khanna in just a moment. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Representative Khanna. Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. Welcome back. Alan in Seattle, you're on the air with Representative Khanna. Good morning, Representative Khanna. Um, morning. The expulsion, <laughs> good morning. The expulsion of George Santos kind of raises the uh, question in my mind, and in general, uh, when do um, Congress folks, uh, are, when are they able to take retirement, and is George Santos, having been a former member of uh, the Congress, does he get retirement? What benefit packages uh, are he gonna, is he going to receive, even though he was expelled? My understanding, and this is just based on, I think, a New York Times article that I read, uh, is that he doesn't qualify uh, for retirement benefits, that the only benefit that he has 
uh, as a former member of Congress, is that he could come onto the House floor anytime he wants. Once you've been a member of Congress, you can you uh, you retain the ability to, to come into the Capitol. Uh, to which he replied when asked by a reporter whether he'd do that is uh, it's the last place he'd want to be. So, uh, but I don't think he gets any of the the retirement benefits. David in North Miami Beach, Florida, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Uh, hey y'all, uh, greetings, Congressman. Um, our local dialysis center uh, just left for North Miami where the rent is lower. Uh, is there a plan to help uh, people donate kidneys? Yes, to be off work for two months, and no one has that kind of sick leave. Any suggestions besides basic income? Well, we, thank you for sharing that. I mean, this is why we need a uh, sick leave policy in this country where paid sick leave. Uh, this is why we need uh, paid family leave, uh, not just if you donate a kidney, which is a, such a, uh, a sacrifice in extreme case. I mean, even if someone's uh, a kid or parent is sick, uh, we're one of the only Western democracies that doesn't have that. And we need to have that policy uh, in place. Uh, and it, of course, should apply if someone is a organ donor. Uh, oops, there we go. Ruth in Maple Grove, Minnesota. You are uh, listening on AM 950. You are on the air with Congressman Kana. Oh, hi. I just had to comment about the woman who called up about Medicare and You booklet. Well, my husband just got, uh, he used to work for the post office, and he got this uh, post office retiree newsletter. And in it, it has listed Medicare, and then it says Part A, B, and then for Part C, it lists Medicare Advantage, and the couple of things that it says is it's a Medicare-approved plan, and then it goes on to say um, you'll need to use doctors who are in the plan's network. It says lower out of may have lower out-of-costs than original Medicare, may offer some benefits that original Medicare doesn't cover, like vision, hearing, and dental. I think that not only that just the uh, social um, Medicare uh, government handout or send outs, but also some of these other agencies. See, I mean, it doesn't quite promote it, but um, I just wanted to bring that to your attention because that might be another place that gets a little bit of your concentration on uh, taking care of that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Ruth. Here is uh, what I would say two things. One, uh, we need to strengthen traditional Medicare. I mean, uh, we need to make sure it has dental, vision, hearing. Bernie Sanders has been talking about this for years in long-term care so that people aren't tempted to, 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 to choose something else. The second thing is people who are offering the a union or a, a other organization or a company a Medicare Advantage plan should talk not just about the uh, superficial benefits, but also the downsides and all of the denial of care, the limiting of networks, and too often uh, the downsides aren't project, pre presented fairly. Hey, thanks so much for sharing our program and for reaching out to our stations and sponsors and letting them know that you're listening. It really means a lot to us. So Vivek Ramaswamy, during the uh, first Republican debate, was laying out his vision for America in, and by the way, he was the number two guy in the debate, according to the Washington Post, in which he was arguing that we should basically do away with all of our federal agencies. Really, uh, virtually all of them. Just, just shut them down and make them go away. 
He's not the first person to argue this. David Koch, running on the uh, Libertarian ticket in 1980 for vice president, was arguing the same thing. He had a long list of federal agencies he wanted to shut down. This is not an uncommon thing among billionaires, and Ramaswamy is a billionaire. Uh, you know, they basically want to take America back to the 1920s before we had what they call the welfare state. And if they do so, they will turn America into a failed state. They want to make America into, into something like Haiti or Libya, and that would be a disaster. There's a whole article about it that you can read all the details. It's titled, Is Vivek Ramaswamy a Different Kind of Republican Cat? At HartmanReport.com. Check it out. We're talking with Congressman Mark Pocan today. Excuse me, <laughs> with Congressman Ro Khanna. I've, uh, it's early in the I, week. I don't uh, mind being confused for Mark. Mark's <laughs> one of the great members of Congress and a good friend. Yeah, so. usually he's the now, one. There's who's... some of them, you know, you compare me to some of them, I'd be, uh, I'd be concerned, Tom. But you I, can always compare me to Mark Pocan. I'm sorry. I, I, I was uh, off by five time zones for the last two weeks, too. So I'm a little jet lagged today. My apologies. Uh, Mansoor in Tucson, Arizona. You're on the air with Representative Khanna. Hey, can you hear me, Tom? Yeah, just fine. Welcome back. Uh, and uh, ever since you had Lamar Waldron on, I bought the book, and I'm wondering if you named the shooters. But for, that's my question for you. For, for Representative Khanna, uh, I just heard they delivered more 2,000-pound bombs to Israel, and uh, I know they have a right to defend themselves, but have you heard the uh, the New York Times story that uh, that they knew all along that uh, a year ago that there was going to be an uprising? And my theory that I've been promoting is that Bibi knew all along there was going to be this thing, and he let it happen so he'd have an excuse to go in and massacre the and 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 raise Gaza to to and just uh, kill as many people as he could. Well, I'm not sorry. I, I think there has to be an investigation into whether there was negligence. I can't imagine that uh, it was uh, intentional, and I, 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 I don't think we should be uh, engaging in that kind of conspiracy theory unless there was a uh, actual evidence and investigation. But what I will say is, uh, at this point, uh, Israel has significantly diminished Hamas's capability, especially in northern Gaza. Uh, they still have the right to go after the perpetrators, uh, and there are ways to do that through special operations or uh, other uh, other means. But uh, I have called for a, a, a permanent ceasefire so that the invasion and bombing uh, of civilians uh, stops. Yeah, it did. Is that is there a growing? I'm assuming it's a growing call for that in Congress. There is. There are about 44 of the last I checked, 43, 44 members of Congress. Many of the progressive members, and uh, you know, some of the folks like uh, Jamie and I who've been uh, getting there uh, in the last week or two. I mean, we we recognize Israel's right to uh, defend themselves against this brutal terrorist attack. Uh, we, we vocally condemned Hamas's terrorist attack, including uh, such brutality against uh, children, women. Uh, but the uh, ongoing uh, bombing after so much of Hamas has been uh, diminished uh, at this point really puts innocent uh, Palestinian children, women at risk. And the question is, how long is it going to go? Because you can't eradicate 45,000 Abbas fighters. It's just not militarily possible. Macron said it would take 10 years. Yeah, wow. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Always enjoy it. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. 
As a writer, I get stuck every so often straining for the right words to tell my story. Over the years, though, I've learned when to quit tying myself into mental knots over sentence construction, instead stepping back and rethinking where my story is going. This process is essentially what millions of American working families are going through this year, as record numbers of them are shocking bosses, politicians, and economists by stepping back and declaring, we quit. Most of the quits are tied to very real abuses that have become ingrained in our workplaces over the past couple of decades. Poverty paychecks, no health care, unpredictable schedules, no child care, understaffing, forced overtime, unsafe jobs, sexist and racist managers, tolerance of aggressively rude customers, and so awful much more. Specific grievances abound, but at the core of each is a deep, inherently destructive, executive suite malignancy, disrespect. The corporate system has cheapened employees from valuable human assets worthy of being nurtured and advanced to a bookkeeping expense that must be steadily eliminated. It's not just about paychecks. It's about feeling valued, feeling that the hierarchy gives a damn about the people doing the work. Yet, corporate America is going out of its way to show that it doesn't care. And, of course, workers notice. So unionization is booming. Millions who were laid off by the pandemic are refusing to rush back to the same old grind. And now millions who have jobs are quitting. This is much more than an unusual unemployment stat. It's a sea change in people's attitude about work itself and life. This is Jim Hightower rethinking where their story is going and how they can take it in a better direction. Yes, nearly everyone will eventually return to work, but workers themselves have begun redefining the job and rebalancing it with life. You're listening to X-Ray FM on KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. The Public News Service Daily Newscast, December the 4th, 2023. I'm Mike Clifford. First to New Hampshire, where gun safety advocates are urging the governor there, Chris Sununu, to back policies proven to reduce gun violence following a series of deadly shootings in the state. Advocates will gather this week to set legislative priorities for the upcoming session, including efforts to close background check loopholes and enforce extreme risk protection orders. Sandra Rice Hawkins with Gun Sense NH, a project of Granite State Progress, says no community is immune to gun violence. They're not immune in Lewiston, Maine. They're not immune in Concord, New Hampshire. And unless we wrap our arms around this and really work together for policy solutions, we're going to continue to have more loss. Rice Hawkins says lawmakers could also enact gun-free school zones in New Hampshire, a state that currently blocks the enforcement of federal firearms laws. I'm Catherine Carley reporting. New Hampshire is one of just three states that does not report that information to databases used in background checks for firearms and purchases. Now from Yahoo News, three commercial ships in the Red Sea were struck by ballistic missiles fired from Houthi-controlled Yemen on Sunday. A U.S. warship shot down three drones in self-defense during the hours-long assault. Responsibility for the attack was claimed by the Houthi rebels, who are backed by Iran. Yahoo says the attacks marked an escalation in a series of maritime attacks in the Mideast linked to the Israeli-Hamas war 
as multiple vessels found themselves in the crosshairs of a single Houthi assault for the first time in the conflict. And the number of people in Wyoming who don't know where their next meal will come from is on the rise. That is according to USDA data. Rachel Bailey with the Food Bank of Wyoming says organizations like hers are also facing higher food costs as they work to ensure neighbors in need can access nourishing food during the winter holidays and beyond. Donations of canned foods are always welcomed, but Bailey says the best way to help is to make a financial contribution. The Food Bank of Wyoming is set up so that we can take $1 and we can make that equal three meals. So that's why if you can give financially, this is a really good time of year to do it. The end of COVID era assistance programs like boosts to SNAP benefits and the refundable child tax credit has put more families at risk of hunger. Proponents of ending the programs warned that they discouraged people from re-entering the workforce, but this concern was unwarranted, according to researchers at MIT and the University of Chicago, who found the programs did not impact workforce participation. I'm Eric Galatis. Contributions to food banks do tend to drop after the holidays. Supporters say it's important for those who can help to stay involved, especially during winter months when volunteers work to get food to older residents who find it hard to leave their homes. This is Public News Service. Next to Minnesota, which is two years away from enacting its new paid leave law, but the debate over costs have resurfaced. Some in the small business community say they're not so worried. The law was adopted this past session with plenty of fanfare, but it also followed debate over the potential impact on businesses. It allows up to 12 weeks of paid family leave or 12 weeks of medical leave. It's capped at 20 weeks for those needing both. It'll be funded through payroll premiums split between employers and employees. But a new state commission analysis says the expected rates should be slightly higher to cover costs. Dan Swenson Clatt, owner of the Butter Bakery Cafe in Minneapolis, still backs the law. It's still about 10 times less than I pay when I'm paying out of pocket to be able to pay that kind of premium level. Organizations like the Chamber of Commerce, as well as Republican lawmakers, say the new findings underscore their concerns about the law being a costly endeavor. But Democratic sponsors welcome the new analysis, saying the new projections are still in line with what they had envisioned when pushing through the plan. I'm Mike Moen. And as the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference in Dubai wraps up, Democratic lawmakers and cleaner advocates are calling on the EPA to release strict rules on emissions from heavy-duty trucks. The agency is expected to act in the next few months. California Senator Alex Padilla says big rigs using diesel fuel are choking the air with smog and soot, especially in black and brown communities close to major freeways. Despite only 10% of the vehicles on the road being heavy-duty vehicles, they produce over a quarter of the transportation sector's greenhouse gas emissions and over half of all particulate matters, this has to be a priority area for the EPA and for all of us. I'm Suzanne Potter. Finally, Eric Kanoff lets us know workers at the Tacoma Art Museum are celebrating a unique union victory that could be a model for other museums. 
The 26 members of Tacoma Art Museum Workers United voted unanimously in favor of the union in November. It's Washington State's first cross-department union in an art museum, although they're still seeking to include two security workers. Institutional giving manager Eden Redmond says they fought for an inclusive union because workers were experiencing similar issues museum-wide. The issues that workers were facing permeated across departments, and they permeated across experience levels and tenure, and they permeated across different generations of leadership. This is Mike Clifford. Thank you for starting your week with Public News Service. Remember, enlist and support it. Here's on radio stations, big and small, your favorite podcast platform. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. And welcome to the second hour of our program. Congressman Khanna is, uh, he's great. And, and uh, so, so glad he could join us for the first hour. Uh, but the next two hours, this hour, and next is you and me. So uh, let's talk about a few things here. There were a couple of articles while, while Louise and I were in Antarctica. I was still writing every day. <laughs> I can't stop. I don't, I don't know if, uh, in fact, I, I even thought about writing an op-ed about this. You know, am, am I suffering from some sort of obsession? You know, that, that uh, every day I probably spent an hour or so reading the news and catching up with the news sites that I follow and, and the opinion sites that I follow. And occasionally post at, you know, like Daily Kos and Common Dreams and, and uh, Democratic Underground and whatnot. But uh, is it that? Is it that I've become a screen addict? Or is it that I realize, as I uh, believe many Americans don't, that we are at one of those pivot points in history that is not unlike in some ways the era of the 1770s, the era of the 1860s, uh, and the era of the 1930s. And uh, it's not that I can't look away, it's that I, uh, you know, because of my neurology or something, it's that I don't want to look away. I mean, because I want, I, this is critical stuff. Which raises uh, one of the pieces that I wrote, I, I published this on November 30th, I don't know what day of the week it was, but that was last week, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday of last week. and. I spent a couple hours actually writing, you know, just doing the research on writing this thing. I spent a lot of the day in, in, in my room uh, working on this article because I thought it was so important. And uh, I, in fact, I think it was probably one of the most important things I've read recently. So let me just run through my thinking on this. And it's, it's asking the question, and what got me started on this is I subscribed to Robert Reich's uh, Substack newsletter, uh, which is brilliant. It's robertreich.substack.com and the former labor secretary. And he published a newsletter, I think it was on Monday of last week, that said, why are so many people prepared to vote for Trump? And then he had a little questionnaire where you can, you know, click a button to ch make your choice. And his choices were, uh, are people voting for this wannabe dictator because of ignorance, because of anger and, or fear, because of racism or xenophobia, or because uh, of Biden's age? And, you know, my take on it is those are all, no doubt, significant factors. But I think the biggest variable is something quite different in the American landscape right now that is uh, that I have seen a transformation of in my life in my lifetime. And I say this as somebody who worked in and I'm talking about news and I say this as somebody who has worked in news virtually my entire life. Um, when I was 16, I got my first real job uh, at uh, WITL AM and FM, WITL AM and FM, Lansing, Michigan. Um, you know, back in, what, 19, uh, I was 16, I guess, 1967. And 
uh, I, that was as a weekend DJ, but within two years at that same radio station, I was doing news every morning. I went in every morning from, from 5 a.m. until 10 a.m. And, uh, and in fact, several days a week, I'd stop at the uh, city hall on the way in and check the police blotter and interview the mayor and stuff like that. And uh, I did that for almost seven years on WITL, on and off, uh, that, that morning news gig. And uh, this was in the 1960s and early 1970s. It was kind of a part-time job for me then. I also, uh, Terry and I, uh, Terry O'Connor and I had started a, an herbal tea company. We were run, running a business on the side. And, and he had an ad agency that I was uh, a part of. But news was very different then. I mean, back then... We had uh, two, two uh, guardrails in place that have since been removed. The first was the Fairness Doctrine, and I've talked about this many times in this program, and I won't go into a long rant about it. The Fairness Doctrine is not what most people think. Most people think that the Fairness Doctrine, if it were still into effect, would mean that if a station carries now of Rush Limbaugh, or now, nowadays Sean Hannity, now that Rush is no longer with us, um, that they had to carry an hour of me. And it's not, exa- it's not at all what it said. What it said, though, was that stations did have to do something called programming in the public interest. And that was understood, and, and you had to do, if you'd failed to do this, every year or every two years when your radio or television station license was up for renewal, uh, they examined that. Are you programming in the public interest? And if you weren't, you could lose your license. And so what was broadly understood to be programming in the public interest was real news. And so CBS, ABC, NBC, all, of, all three of the television networks, and, and the radio networks uh, all lost money on news. Now, the radio networks lost it because they were buying their news from, from you know, news sources like the Associated Press, uh, but they still had to pay for news. So for every, all the media agencies, mo- news was a money-losing operation. I mean, they lost millions of dollars every year. Um, but they wanted to have really good, high-quality news. So they had bureaus all over the world and real reporters and journalistic standards and all this kind of stuff. That was essentially mandated by, by the Fairness Doctrine, at least mandated for one hour, five days a week on television, the first primetime hour, which had to be a half-hour half national, half-hour local news. And it was mandated for radio stations that, was, that were running actual news, five minutes of news at the top of every hour, something that sort of endures to this day, but not everywhere. And... Um, so that was number one. And number two was in 1996, Bill Clinton signing the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which blew apart what were called cross-ownership and mass-ownership rules. It used to be that if you owned a radio station in a particular town, you couldn't also own the television station and the newspaper. Uh, or if you did, there were all kinds of restrictions on you know, how you could involve yourself. And if you had, you know, 10 or 12 radio stations. Well, Clear Channel was a little group in, in a couple of southeastern states of uh, a couple of dozen radio stations. And that was, the, you know, that was the, one of the largest of the, of the uh, networks. And the Telecommunications Act of 96 blew up those ownership rules. And so, you know, within a year, Clear Channel had over 900 stations. And, and, uh, and, and, and within a year of Reagan stopping the enforcement of the Fairness Doctrine in 1986, I believe it was, maybe 87, um, within a year of that, ABC, NBC, and CBS had all moved their news divisions under their out of being independent standalone uh, operations within their networks to being answerable to their vice president of entertainment programming. In other words, they became money making operations. Now, if you're running news as a money making operation, 
the actuality, the reality, the details of what's going on in the world that, that you know, those of us who have a background in news would say, yeah, that's news, that's important stuff, people need to know that. Those become irrelevant. What becomes relevant is what's gonna get the most eyeballs, what's gonna get the most clicks, what's gonna draw the most viewers. Which takes us back to an era in the 1890s when William Randolph Hearst decided that he was gonna take on Joseph Pulitzer, who owned a, then the, the dominant newspaper in the United States, it was called the New York World, and it was pretty much real journalism, although Pulitzer was starting to flirt with yellow journalism. But in 1895, William Randolph Hearst opened uh, a newspaper uh, in, in, uh, in New York City that just blew out the door. And, and in fact, he hired away a, a cartoonist from, from, uh, from Pulitzer. The guy's name was Richard Aukalt. And he published a, 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 a cartoon called The Yellow Kid. And that was where the phrase yellow journalism came from, because he left Hertz and he went to, or he left uh, Pulitzer and went with Hertz, Hearst. And so basically, ever since the 1895, we've had this phrase yellow journalism. And we pretty much had this sensation driven kind of journalism in the United States right up until the mid 1940s. Um, certainly, you know, the, the, the point that's typically identified, and there have been a number of actual, you know, serious scholarship books written about this um, uh, over the years. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the turning point seems to be we had ye yellow journalism essentially from 1895 until 1945, till Pearl Harbor. And then from 1945 until the Reagan era, we had this 40-year period of actual news almost 50 years of actual news. And Americans were well-informed. I mean, yeah, there were things that we weren't talking about that we should have been talking about. And, you know, there were, I, 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 it's easy to criticize the news from that era. But when you compare it to today, I think it's kind of apples and oranges. And this is the problem that we have today is this modern era of yellow journalism. And I track this back to the 1990s when Ken Starr, and Newt Gingrich decided to go after Bill Clinton on, on the Monica Lewinsky affair. And in part, they were able to do that because, you know, Reagan had ended the Fairness Doctrine, and this was in the middle of the era when the 1996 Telecommunications Act was, was uh, passed. Limbaugh's show went on the air in 1988. Rupert Murdoch's Fox News went on the air in 1996, same year as the, as the Telecommunications Act. And what I would argue is that, you know, all those things that Robert Reich was proposing are legitimate. You know, people are upset and people are afraid and people, you know, all those reasons uh, why they might vote for Trump, you know, that they're uninformed. That, but, but my argument is that it's not any of those specific emotions. My argument is that it is our media itself. We are in an era that I would describe as a renaissance of yellow journalism, of the journalism from 1895 to 1945. And if you're old enough to remember the news prior to the mid to late 1980s, if you're old enough to remember the news in the 1970s and early 80s, and certainly the 60s, um, which as I said, I remember well, I, I did for seven years uh, on the air every day or every weekday. If you remember that, then you know what I'm talking about. You know how different the news is today. 
you get, you know, and it's like the media is incapable of like chewing gum and walking at the same time. We're, you know, we're all hearing about Israel and the Middle East. What happened to the coverage of, of what's going on in Ukraine? I mean, the, the, the fate and future of democracy in the world to a, to a significant extent, in my opinion, depends on what's going on in Ukraine. Been no coverage of that. And this, but, you know, that's kind of a side note. The, the, where I started with this is why do people not think Biden's doing a great job? Why do people not think that the economy is doing great when the economic numbers now are better than they've been since the 1960s by most indexes? And I would argue because yellow journalism, if it bleeds, it leads. Yellow journalism cares not about what's going on, not about the facts, not about the reality, but about what's going to get clicks. What kind of headline is going to get the highest click-through rate so that they can display an ad to you? What kind of rant is going to get, you know, is going to go viral on the internet so that, again, they can display an ad to you or, or increase their brand awareness and power? And we need to get back to real news in the United States. And frankly, I think the only way to do it is to shame the media. So start reaching out. Comment on their comments. Write the letters to the editor. Let them know you want real news. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 18 minutes past the hour. I'll be right back. Stay with us. And welcome back. Bob in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? Bob in Tahlequah watching us on Free Speech TV. Going once, going twice. Let's try Rob in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Rob, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad it wasn't a gremlin on our end. So what's up? Uh, well, I first took my first journalism class in 1970, so my mentors were Edward R. Murrow and, of course, Ernie Pyle, who was in the so-called oh, yeah. Pacific yeah. Theater. Yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, what do you think? Uh, well, in terms of truth and journalism, uh, I was wondering if you could define uh, klep- kleptocrat, plutocrat, cacistocracy. Oh, I think we're in one, <laughs> or all three of them. Um, do you need definitions? I mean, uh, or do, were you asking if I'm well, familiar with the terms? If you're familiar with the term. Yeah, I, I, I am. And, and I think probably, uh, you know, in our, in our business sphere, we are very much in a kleptocracy. In our politicals, you know, in other words, corporations just robbing us blind because they can do it, in large part because Reagan in 1983 stopped the enforcement of the antitrust laws. That has now begun again in a small way. You've got Biden going after Google, for, for example, right now in court. Um, but we need to go a hell of a lot farther. And in the 1960s, uh, Buster Brown and Kinney wanted to merge, and the Supreme Court stopped that merger because they would have represented 6% of the shoe market. Um, now you've got, you know, uh, uh, one company that, that represents 18% of the shoe market, you know, based right here in, in Portland, Nike, uh, or in Oregon. You bet. So, yeah. I've got, I, I, yeah, go got a question for you. So which, uh, in, in, in order, which president uh, placement was George Washington? You mean how would I characterize the Washington administration? No, the way he stated as being the first president. Right. Well, arguably. Yeah, I mean, he was arguably the fourth, but yes. 
But he was preceded by uh, 14 Continental Congress presidents who claimed that they had the, they owned the whole continent or they laid claim to the whole continent as they called themselves Continental Congress president. Well, yeah, yes and no, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I get that, but that was under under the Articles of Confederation. We did not have a, we were not literally a federal nation at that time. I mean, you could say we were Are the United bet. States of America, but. Are you familiar with uh, Bridge Anne d'Avignon? No, I'm not. Well, 10 years ago, she made a video and uh, she researched uh, uh, Burke's peerage and she researched over 490,000 DNA documents proving that on the maternal side uh, in 2010, that 43 out of then 44 U.S. presidents were direct maternal DNA of John Lachlan Plantagenet, King of England, and also that then at that time, 34 out of 44 were direct paternal. Yeah, I, I remember when that hit the Holy news. Roman Emperor, you, you wonder to what extent Holy that's Roman true Emperor, of all Americans. Charlo- well. Charlo- Charlemagne. No, Berg's peerage proves that they hybridized, breed themselves, and you're rather oh. sort of a bobblehead profligate. <laughs> Come on, Rob. You t- yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I, uh, I get it. Uh, Rob, thank you for the call. Uh, it's a it's a conspiracy. Thank you. Twenty two minutes past the hour. We'll be right back. Stay with us. starts with you. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. It's the Capitol switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. So a lot of people are wondering, why is it in America that we can't have nice things? Why don't we have, you know, the same things every other democracy has. Every other democracy in the world has a national health care system of some form, and everybody is covered. We don't. We've got 27 million un- uninsured people and over 100 million underinsured people. Why is that? Why is it that every other country in the world offers college education very inexpensively, if not for free, and for here you go to debt? Why is it that we've got our public schools crumbling and other, other countries are doing well? Why is it that we've got Medicare being taken apart by this Medicare Advantage scam and nobody will do anything about it? Well, it turns out the reason why has, it boils down to one thing, one Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, legalizing the bribery of our politicians. There's a whole rant about this over at, at uh, HartmanReport.com. Uh, I think you're, you're going to find it very, very useful. Check it out. And welcome back. So uh, just a a couple of things here I wanted to share with you, and then I'll get to your phone calls. Uh, First of all, the president of COP28, Sultan al-Jabbar, has uh, uh, apparently in a private uh, meeting, he made the comment that uh, there is no way. Well, here's what he said. He said, "I I, I accepted to come to this meeting to have a sober and mature conversation. I am not in any way signing up to any discussion that is alarmist. There is no science out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuels is what's going to achieve 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, it, first of all, we're at 1.3. I mean, we've, we 
surpassed 1.5, but it was a temporary thing associated with El Nino. But we're at 1.3 right now worldwide, you know, on a kind of standard uh, moving graph. And so in one way, he's right that if we ended all fossil fuels today, we would still hit 1.5 because there's an overhang and it takes a while for the fossil fuels, particularly the methane in the atmosphere, to break down and, and get flushed out and things like that and for CO2 to get reabsorbed. But on the other hand, the language, his language kind of diminished the whole idea of doing anything about it at all. And he's getting a lot of flack for this. And he's now he's pushing back. But um, I find this concerning, shall we say, that the head of COP28 is also the head of the third or fourth largest oil company or fossil fuel producer in the world. Also, uh, Donald, Donald Trump had a, said that he had a, a solution to, uh, to uh, the, uh, the problem of health care in the United States. And Ron DeSantis is jumping on this, and now Trump is saying, yeah, yeah, he's saying the same thing I am, which is that he wants to provide an alternative to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, this is what he said, uh, and I quote, he said, we're seriously looking at alternatives, uh, making health care, this, this is not a quote, but uh, uh, he said probably in the spring, he was making, making health care costs publicly available so that consumers can compare prices. Yeah, right. So if you get in a car accident before the ambulance, when the ambulance driver says, which hospital do you want to go to and which doctor do you want to see? You say, well, I'd like to see the pricing on, you know, that anesthesiologist charges $1,000 uh, per procedure. And this one only charges 800. I think I'll go with this, you know, like bright, brilliant. Um, and then the other one is he said he wants lower insurance premiums for people who choose low cost providers. In other words, let's go back to the days. And this is what Trump did when Trump was president. There is an exception in the Affordable Care Act that says that companies can offer a 30 day policy, maybe up to a 90 day policy for people who like lose their job and lose their insurance. But it's super high deductible and it can screw you 16 ways to Sunday but it's cheap. Trump extended that to three years. Now, I think it's been undone, but this is what Obama and uh, DeSantis are pitching. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Well, thinking Obamacare, and like I said, I'm jet-lagged. <laughs> we'll be right back with your calls. Today is Cyber War, How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect a President by Kathleen Hall Jamison. This is from the introduction. Imagine a strategy memo forecasting cyber attacks by Russian hackers, trolls, and bots designed to royal social discontent and damage the electoral process of a major party U.S. presidential nominee, or if she win winds up winning, sabotage her ability to govern. Guaranteed payoff, no fingerprints, no keystroke record, keystroke record, no contrails in the cloud. To ensure that Americans would believe that disparaging messages about her were made in the U.S., use Bitcoin to buy space and set up virtual private networks on American servers. Distribute hacked content stolen from the accounts of her staff and associates through an intermediary, WikiLeaks. Use identity theft, stolen social security numbers, and appropriated IDs to circumvent Facebook and PayPal's demand for actual names, birth dates, and addresses. On platforms such as Instagram and Twitter, reg register under assumed names. 
Diffuse and amplify your attack and advocacy through posts on Facebook, tweets and retweets on Twitter, videos on YouTube, reporting and commentary on RT, blogging on Tumblr, news sharing on Reddit, and viral memes and jokes on 9gag. Add to the mix a video game called Hiltendo, in which a missile-trading Clinton figure vaporizes classified emails sought by the FBI. Employ online agitators and bots to upvote posts from imposter websites such as blackmattersus.com to the top of such subreddits as r slash the Donald and r slash Hillary for prison. Drive content to trend. To maximize the impact of your handiwork, use data analytics and search engine maxima maximization tools built into social media platforms. To test and fuel doubts about the security of U.S. voter information, hack the electoral systems of the states. And throughout the primary and general election season, seed the notion that if Hillary Clinton were to win, she would have done so by rigging the election, an outcome that would repay her assaults on the legitimacy of their leader's presidency with doubts about her own. Were she, intend were she instead to lose, she would no longer be a thistle in the toned torso of the hackers and trolls boss's likely boss. Every result but one produces a desirable result for outcome for the Kremlin. Outcome one, Clinton is off the international stage. Outcome two, she wins but can't govern effectively. Outcome three, the former Secretary of State is elected and the country simply moves on, but the sabotage nonetheless has magnified cultural tensions and functions as a pilot from which to birth later success, perhaps when she runs for a second term. The only eventuality that damages the Russian cyber soldiers and their commander-in-chief is the fourth, in which, in real time, the cyber attackers are unmasked by a vigilant intelligence community, condemned by those in both major political parties and around the world, characterized by the media as spies and saboteurs. The Russian message is blocked or labeled as Russian propaganda and, when included in media accounts, the stolen content is relentlessly tied to its Russian origins and sources. None of that, however, happened. Instead, to the surprise of the Russian masterminds, as well as both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, he won the Electoral College and with it a four-year claim on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Although countrywide she bested him by almost 2.9 million votes, he unexpectedly captured an Electoral College majority by running the table. By the end of the evening of November 8th, Florida, as well as Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania were in his column. The ways in which Russian hacking and social media messaging altered the content of the electoral dialogue and thus contributed to Donald Trump's victory are the subjects of this book. To begin my exploration, this overview chapter will highlight key findings of the U.S. intelligence community, preview my focus on the hackers and trolls and the synergy between them, justify casting the Russian machinations as acts of cyber war, outline ways in which susceptibilities in our system of government and media structures magnified their effect, and note five presuppositions that will shape my analysis of the Russian trolls' work, and one that will guide my study of the effects of the hackers. Forming the backdrop for my inquiry are three reports on the Russian intervention of the 2016 presidential election. The October 7, 2016 statement jointly issued by the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence on Election Security. The January 2017 conclusion of the U.S. intelligence agencies, CIA, FBI, NSA, and the February 2018 Robert Mueller indictment of 13 of the Russians allegedly behind the social media intrusions. On a day that will live in campaign lore, as much for what didn't happen as what, for did, as what did, more on that in a moment, the first of the three revealed the following. 
U.S. intelligence community is confident that the Russian government directed the recent compromises of email from U.S. persons and institutions, including the U.S. political organizations. The recent disclosures of alleged hacked emails on sites like DCLeaks.com and WikiLeaks and by the Guccifer 2.0 online persona are consistent with the methods and motives of Russian-directed efforts. These thefts and disclosures were intended to interfere with the U.S. election process. Such activity is not new to Moscow. The Russians have used similar tactics and techniques across Europe and Eurasia, for example, to affect public opinion there. We believe, based on the scope and sensitivity of these reports, efforts, that only Russia's senior-most officials could have authorized these activities. That's from the report. The next report put a name to one of those senior-most officials and specified an intended beneficiary, Donald Trump. Cyber War is the book. Hey, if you like the rants that I open the show with every day, they're typically published over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. When I was a little kid, my grandmother had a piano, and I loved to play it. I, 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 I was incompetent, <laughs> but, but I was figuring out all kinds of stuff. And then I kind of got away from it and, you know, went to school and things got busy and just lost track of it. Well, now there's this fascinating new study out of the University of, of Geneva, Switzerland, that is making me think, maybe I should go back and learn the piano. Uh, it, what they found was that they, they, they took a group of 132 healthy uh, older adults, uh, retired, 62 to 78 years old. Half of them learned the piano. Half of them took music classes uh, without learning the piano. And what they found was that those who learned the piano actually had uh, the, the strongest increase in their memory, in their, in, their, in their mental competence, their mental faculties. Those who took the music classes also, also did well, but the, learning the piano was a huge step. So uh, check it out. There's a whole long rant about this over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. And welcome back. So let's pick up your calls. It's, uh, it seems like I've been here, I've been gone so long, and yet at the same time, it seems like it was just yesterday. It's, it's a, the funny feelings that, of, of jet lag <laughs> and, and taking vacations. Malcolm in Bluebell, Pennsylvania. Hey, Malcolm, what's on your mind today? Welcome back, Tom. Thank you. One thing you left out with the media uh, rant, if you will, was Les Moonves and his great, great quote about uh, he might be bad for America, but he's great for CBS. Keep it up, Donald. You're absolutely right. Oh, it, 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 so right it just now, super proves my point. Exactly. I mean, it, it's been profit over human life for a long time in this society, from the gun manufacturers on down to big tobacco. And so I don't see anything changing anytime soon with Citizens United and whatnot anytime soon on that, on that faucet. But what I was calling about was um, when the senator was on there, Mark Pocan, a couple minutes ago, he mentioned oh, that, was, that was Congressman Ro Khanna. Congressman Ro Khanna. We made the same mistake. When Mr. Ro Khanna, he said that um, he didn't want to speak on other members of Congress without due process, but I think the whole world saw Lauren Boebert's tweet during the insurrection and the fact that you had so many members of Congress asking for free pardons for taking part in January 6th is alarming that there hasn't been any explanation or even investigation and there should be more expelling done aside from George Santos just purely based on that but my question was is it possible 
there's so many books that come out of the White House under Trump's administration, and the latest one is Liz Cheney. And I, I, from what I've gathered is that she's also talking about where the bodies are buried. Between yeah, it other hits the stands tomorrow. I, I have a feeling tomorrow and Wednesday we're going to hear a lot about it. Right, so is that her book, is it possible for, I mean, not that they would want to, but for the Justice Department to even take anything from that, to have her come in for an interview and actually pursue it? Because right now, if I make a rap song and talk about potentially a crime that may or may not have happened, I could be arrested for it. Yeah. So is it a difference book-wise? I have seen reporting, Malcolm, suggesting that she has been interviewed by the FBI um, or that that's in the process as a consequence of some of the things that are in her book. I, I've not seen any confirmation of it. I've, I think the stuff I've been reading is more speculative. And I'm talking about in, you know, like New York Times, Washington Post kind of, you know, media. Um, uh, but uh, and, and with regard to the to the traitors in Congress, um, the, the half a dozen or a dozen people who explicitly asked Donald Trump for pardons, um, I think you've got, uh, you know, Scott Perry is kind of at the top of that list and he's getting some renewed scrutiny. He's the guy who uh, apparently tried to bring uh, John Eastman into the into the Department of Justice in the White House. Um, right. and, and then Lauren Boebert tweeting it today is 1776. And, and by the way, here's where Nancy Pelosi is. She just left her office. Um, the you yeah. People that were later arrested. Yeah. You know, I don't know where it's at. I, I do. I do agree with the congressman that due process is important, and George Santos got that. And, and but I don't think that the due process has to be a function of the court system. Um, I think that the House. Uh, the, well, first of all, I, I would think that the House Oversight Committee would want to, which is it theoretically has oversight over the executive and judicial branches, but but it should have oversight over itself as well. I think that they should be looking into this. This is James Comer's, you know, he's uh, all going after uh, spending all his time now on Hunter Biden. Um, but the, the House, the House Ethics Committee, that's that's where George Santos got his actual due process. I mean, they they did an evaluative process. They called witnesses. They came to conclusions based on evidence. They issued a long report. It was completely bipartisan. Um, the the impeachment or the expulsion uh, uh, provision that was brought to the floor of the House was brought by the Republican chairman of the committee. Um, but that committee is not going to look into any of these other members, sadly, right now. And I, I suspect when Democrats take the House back, you know, knock wood, um, next year. Um, it, it, well, it would be, actually it would be January of 2025, but yeah, 13 months from now. Um, if and when that happens, I would be surprised if the House Ethics Committee did look into those things simply because they're so far in the past. And the, the immunity clause of the Constitution basically allows members of Congress to do just about anything and get away with it. Uh, you know, I say that, you know, sadly, I, you know, but I, I do hope, Malcolm, that there is due process within the Department of Justice. And this recent reporting on Scott Perry, um, it causes me to think that maybe they're starting to look at members of Congress again. Maybe they're finding a spine, but I, I don't have any specific details. Malcolm, I got to move along. Thank you for the call. Good points all. Excellent points all. Paul in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Well, first of all, Tom, Tommy Nisfabiskum, I didn't know you were an honorary Catholic. Welcome back. Oh, thank um, you. The uh, uh, topic that I have in mind is the uh, the oligarchs and the oligarchy, and uh, it, it's really a very long-standing uh, form of social organization in in you know human history, going back thousands of years, and I think. Uh, 
today what we need to understand is that the oligarchs all don't get along. They don't all have class cohesion, uh, the so-called ruling class. Uh, they're, they're no more a monolith than uh, all Irish or all blacks or all, you know, take your pick, Jews. Well, that's, that's uh, true of any group, Paul, but the problem that we have is there's this handful, and I would say probably 10, 12, 14, right-wing billionaires who have gotten extraordinarily active in the political process. And as far as I know right now, I mean, even the, the left-wing billionaires that we knew about, George Soros and, and uh, Mayor Bloomberg, um, uh, Tom Steyer, they're, they're gone. They're doing nothing. And, and when they do do something like, you know, George Soros, I mean, a big grant for him is, you know, a hundred million bucks. You're talking some of these right-wing billionaires on the right have, have literally put billion, I mean, last, the last election was a $12 billion election. Well, I, I, I would agree that that is a problem, but what I'm trying to point out, just, just for example, um, and, and concerning, um, let's take two big examples, Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump's going to make it onto a ballot, much less the White House. And the reason is he's under a political attack uh, by a couple of states and the federal government. Uh, he's not going to survive that, and I mean politically. I don't mean in any other, you in know. In other words, you, th you think that the 14th Amendment's going to keep him off the ballot. Is that what you're saying? Or do you think that he's going to start I losing th I primaries? Think I, think, I think that's a part of it, but what's more importantly is He's under political attack. He could be going to jail. It's going to dismantle the the oligarchs that are, that are looking to not have our society ripped to pieces. It's not a very profitable well, the, society. You know, the, the, Koch, that the Koch network has now, and, and it's, you know, people say it's just Charles Koch, but it's not. It's, I mean, there's a group of a, a little over 100 high, well, high net worth individuals, and I'm guessing probably the majority of them are actually billionaires. You know who get together twice a year with with uh, or used to anyway with the Koch brothers, and have considerable influence. And they they pool their money through these dark money pools. Uh, um, uh, there's several of them um, that that are basically untraceable, and they're huge in the Republican politics. And they've all now dumped, or at least that network, which I think is very powerful, uh, says that they've dumped Trump and they're going with Nikki Haley. Although I'm not sure that well, she's well, going to be that much better. She has committed, uh, as far as I know. Actually, maybe she hasn't committed, but she hasn't turned down uh, the Heritage Foundation's Project 2025, for example. Well, I'm not. I'm not saying that the, there's a a less evil Republican candidate out there than Donald Trump. I'm just saying you need uh, not you personally. I mean, obviously, you you have a very long history. We're both older, and we have a, a, a longer perspective. Um, what I'm saying is, right now, I don't think Trump's going to survive. He's under. Yeah. Uh, severe, legitimate political attack. But not only, not only that, even someone like Elon Musk, who uh, is obviously he's on another side because his main business is electric cars, uh, electric solar panels, you know, the photovoltaic solar panels, and battery packs. Mm -hmm. And he's single-handedly dismantling the demand for, for oil in this country. I mean, this weekend I just spent $3.25 a gallon in the Philadelphia suburban region at Costco. And, you know, after my give back, it's going to be like three, I don't know, 311 or 312. The gasoline prices are crashing. And some of the reports on the business channel are actually voicing what the real issue is. It's called demand destruction. Yeah. 
Not yeah. only are there electric People cars, electric there's cars. many more hybrid cars that make it 50 to 60 miles a gallon. Yep. People just aren't buying enough gasoline. They're going to contract. And that's why you're hearing a pushback from COP28 uh, or whatever they're up to by yeah. the, uh, the the Saudis. They're trying to pretend that they're not going to get wiped Saudi off the Arabia, of the one of the things that got leaked, Paul, was, was this document about how Saudi Arabia was coming into the meeting with a plan to uh, hustle Afri developing African countries and go to them and say, hey, instead of jumping over fossil fuels, like, like America and Europe are suggesting, a lot of aid programs in the UN are suggesting, where you go from having villages that literally don't have electric lights to suddenly having villages that have you know, a solar panel on every roof uh, and, and enough electricity for the entire community without burning a single ounce of fossil fuel. They're trying to convince the Africa, these poor, poor cities, and, and providing subsidies, by the way, to these poor cities to build coal-fired power plants and electrify themselves and to, and to drive and, 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 gasoline-powered vehicles. Yeah, and, and it's not, it's not going to work. And the reason why it's not, not going to work, I'll give a historic example, is the wireless cell phone networks. You know, we still see telephone poles, but they're not really there for the telephone anymore. They're really there for electricity primarily. Right. Well, eventually that's going to go the way of the dodo. Yeah. But here, here's, the, here's the main point. When Eastern Europe uh, became a part of greater Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall, they were trying to modernize. And one of the things that they were trying to do is they were, you know, wanted to put up a, a modern telecommunication system. Everyone didn't have a telephone in East Germany or yeah. Romania. So what happened was, of all people, <laughs> Václav Havel was a good friend with Frank Zappa, and he said, you don't need to do that. Just put up cell phone, ta these cell phone gadgets on top of your buildings. Right, just jump in. That's the leapfrog of the technology th thing that people are exactly. saying about solar power you know, in Africa right now. You, you can't sell what, to Africa what they're going to have to have, which is a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure for coal and underground storage tanks for gas stations. It's not going to happen. Oh, they're subsidizing What's it, though. This, this is the Saudi cheaper. plan. The Saudi plan is to go into these countries and say, we'll provide it, you with this. It's a rear guard action. They can agree, say that all they want. I agree. It's not going to happen. Yeah, well, <laughs> so we'll see. We need, well, so what I'm saying is we need to look at the people who are whose interests, you know, you know, are, are basically commensurate with yours and mine and your listening audience. And that would be people like Elon Musk with his factories for cars, for batteries, and for solar power. You know, except that the, 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 thing that he proved that. At, uh, the thing that he proved at that Financial Times, or New York Times, or whatever it was, the meeting that was moderated by Andrew Ross Sarkin uh, last week, I believe it was, where Elon Musk told uh, Bob Iger of Disney to go F himself. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think what he has demonstrated is that he he has lost, you know, he doesn't care. He's, I, I, I think the guy is, is, he's got some psychological problems or some emotional problems from, you know, growing up abused well, and also growing up in apartheid South Africa. He might, but Tesla is is going on of its own inertia. It's no longer yeah. an Elon Musk project. It's bigger than him, and it's bigger than the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. They have a 10 million square foot factory in Texas that's going to be completely smothered in electric panels. It'll be self-contained. No, I get, I, get even... I get it. I get it. I get it. Although I think he's damaging his own brand. I know people right now who will not buy Teslas who would have a year ago. Paul, thanks for the call. We'll be right back. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Speaking the truth, the multinational corporations, especially the oil industry, would really rather you didn't know. I'll be right back with you, Tom. Jake in Elizabeth, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jake, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Mr. Tom. I was just curious as to why people aren't, at least the public type people, aren't simply referring to Donald Trump as a bad-tempered three-year-old. I think they're starting to, Jake. Yeah, well, they were a little late while, getting but... to the party. Yeah, it seems to me like they're a little late yeah, getting seven to years the party, late. you know? I agree. Seven years late. Yep, but... Uh, yeah, he's yeah. Uh, anybody that's ever raised kids, they know that attitude. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he really is the spoiled brat of our time. I mean, you're absolutely right. Jake, thanks a lot for that. That great, great observation. Sean in Stamford, Connecticut. Hey, Sean, what's on your mind today? Well, um, well, first of all, welcome back. Thank you. And uh, you were talking about journalism before, and you triggered a couple of memories of mine. Um, one was that I remember in the 1990s where our, two of our local TV stations here in New York would run news stories about, like, about health and oh, how crossing the street could be dangerous to your health. And it culminated in one where it goes, brushing your teeth can be dangerous to your health. And this triggered a huge response nationally. Like, what the? Was it? Mm-hmm. And it caused all this mass confusion. Uh huh. It was, it was, I was like, I stopped watching, paying attention because of that. Because, you know, health is, is so crucial, and yet they're running these paranoid stories every two days or so. Yeah. It was insane. And then I remember, um, back in 2005, I was going to take a trip out to Los Angeles. With my girlfriend and a friend of ours, did this whole rant about what Los Angeles news would sound like. It goes breaking news: so and so just woke up. We get there, <laughs> we turn on the news the following morning. We're watching Good Day Los Angeles, and guess what? It was exactly what he did. Oh, really? It was personality-driven. Well, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a town that is, I mean, Los Angeles, an awful lot of the economy of Los Angeles is based in the movie industry and the television industry, the, the, you know, the, the, the drama industry, as it were. So it's not a surprise that that's heavily covered. I mean, in Detroit, they oh, talk know, a lot about I the car industry. That's where I grew he up. Didn't, yeah. He didn't been there. He just did a whole rant in front, of, and we're letting our brains out. We get there, and it was like, he had exactly right. He was, and I told him, and he could not. He was one hundred percent on the money. It was frightening. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this is called being a company town, and uh, but I think your larger point, though, is to the fact that news isn't talking about news anymore. They're talking about celebrity scandal and gossip. Is that is that the main point? Exactly. There? Yeah, and yeah. then and then as my friend Alyssa Simmons said to me years ago, who's um, from Long Island, he goes. The news is stupid. Yeah, yeah. Well, sadly, that's that is what has happened. We've we've seen a real dumbing down of the news. You know, most news stories are now written in with an eighth eighth grader, uh, you know, uh, ability to read in mind, and 
and uh, or maybe eight year old. <laughs> I think it's eight. <laughs> yeah, I, she, she knows what she's talking about. I guess so. Sean, thanks for the call. It's uh, what is it? Eight minutes before the hour. I'll be right back with more of your calls here in sixty seconds. Stay tuned. support progressive radio if you're listening to us on a commercial station call their advertisers and let them know you're listening if you're listening to us on pacifica or one of our many nonprofit stations please support them when they do their fundraising drives thanks for supporting progressive talk radio and tag your it support so maga mike and the republicans want a religious test for people running for public office oh. they want to know that you are sufficiently christian to be worthy of being elected Right. Mega Mike is one of these uh, seven mountain evangelicals. There are seven domains where these dominionists believe that we need to have religion completely take them over. Education, religion, family, business, government and military, arts and entertainment, and the media. Seriously. This is not what Jesus was preaching when he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto, unto God what is God's. This is the opposite, in fact, of what Jesus was teaching. It's the opposite of Matthew 25, where Jesus said, the only way to get to heaven is by feeding the hungry, healing the sick, helping the poor. It's, this is counter-Christian, anti-Christian, in fact. In fact, I think you could say it is the Antichrist's work. There's a piece about it over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Welcome back. Picking up your calls here, Bob in San Jose. Hey, Bob, what's up? Well, I was going to come in earlier. You were mentioning about how how real radio stations in the fifties and sixties had news departments, and, and they actually covered local news and and early eighties. Yes. Yeah, but there was a parallel thing that was happening, and I and I think you missed that, and that is that the possibility of replacing a network which used rented telephone wires with a satellite dish uh, not much bigger than a patio umbrella and a, and a one-car garage-sized building next to a tower could eliminate almost all of that staff. And you could, you could literally have the automation in the 90s, have mm -hmm. local commercials that were fed by telephone lines into that automation, Otherwise, have the whole thing remote controlled and mostly satellite distributed programming. Yeah, and one of my brothers in the 90s got one of those satellite dish antennas for his backyard, and it was amazing. I mean, you could see European television and stuff. Is yeah, that what you're talking yeah, well, about? That's that, what I'm getting that, at. Was the, the cost that was before cable, actually. Or as cable was just beginning, really. Yeah, but, but the, cost of, the cost of program distribution went way down. Mm -hmm. And that, and the paying a, paying a high monthly fee to the uh, AT and T or the, or their counterparts went away, um, right. and so it was possible. And once the ownership cap was removed, to eliminate almost all of the people. Yeah, that's so a good there, point. the staffing became very close to zero for many of those radio stations. Now look at what happened, and this one will make your hair stand on end. There is a town called Minot, North Dakota, and this is a large Air Force base. There was a railroad train 
track through there, and they had a derailment of ten cars. A couple yeah. of the ten cars. Need you to get to the point, Bob. We got about twenty ammonia. seconds here. They opened. They cracked open. It looked like fog. There was a cluster of six radio stations run by a, a company I won't name, and totally on automation. There was no one there. Oh, that's the right. It was, was a, it was a chlorine state. leak, wasn't it? It was some kind of poisonous no, no, gas? It a, it, no, it was anhydrous ammonia. Ammonia, that's right. Is it looked like fog, and, and it was dangerous, and no one was there, able to tell that's the right. audience to stay in their houses. Yeah, those were clear channel. That was a clear channel pod there. Yeah. No, I, I remember that well. I remember that well, and it really was a kind of a, a bellwether, a warning sign for all of us. Bob, thanks for the call. You're, you're well informed. Appreciate it. We'll continue on the other side of the break. Is uh, COP28 another rigged game for the fossil fuel industry? What about Vice President Harris? She gave an incredible speech yesterday in, um, uh, in uh, Dubai. And uh, I want to talk about that. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Is corporate ethics an oxymoron? Do you have to be a jerk to be a successful CEO? Is exploitation the only path to profit? The good news is that many companies, big and small, in the food economy are blazing a different path through Wall Street's jungle of greed, demonstrating that money and morality can be compatible. Texas supermarket chain HEB, for example, has drawn an intense loyal customer base by, one, investing in good wages and benefits for employees, two, showing up in such emergencies as pandemics, hurricanes, freezes, to give essential supplies and hands-on help, and three, being an involved and supportive neighbor to the hundreds of unique communities it serves. Also, Maine Grains is relocalizing the business of milling grain by working with local farmers who had been abandoned by global grain marketers. They're producing flowers from heritage grains, boosting the local economy in the process. Then there's Bob's Red Mill, which also mills its products from diverse natural grains, and it's 100% employee-owned. These are part of a rising business alternative to the selfish profiteering ethic of Fortune 500 titans. Called certified B corporations, they definitely exist to make a profit, but they're equally focused on having a positive social impact, prioritizing fair wages, environmental protections, and healthy communities as core elements of their missions, even making those goals legal requirements of their corporate charter. This is Jim Hightower saying Ben and & Jerry's and New Belgium Brewery are just a couple more of some 3,800 other businesses, 100 other businesses now organized as B Corps. Though not pretending to be perfect, they're at least striving to be more than money grubbers, instead trying to contribute to the common good. For more information, go to bcorporation.net. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program right here on X-Ray FM, 91.1 and 107.1 on the FM dial here in Portland and in Manzanita, Nehalem, Wheeler, and Rockaway Beach. You can find us on 91.7 FM and streaming online everywhere for your listening pleasure at xray.fm. Tom will be back in just a few minutes. In the meantime, we've got this week's jazz concert calendar with Tom and Thomas. 
as long as a few important announcements from our friends and sponsors. So please stay tuned right here to X-Ray FM, another beautiful Monday morning where radio is yours. Hello, X-Ray listeners, and welcome again to Jazz in Portland. I'm Thomas Smith here with Tom Skelly. Hey, Thomas. Here are some events for the week of December 4th, Monday, December 4th, at Alberta Street Pub. 1036 Northeast Alberta Street, Jack Radcliffe Winter Trio, 7 to 10 p.m. Tuesday, December 5th, at Nicoletta's Table, 333 South State Street, Suite M, Lake Oswego, Tom Grant on piano, 6 to 8 p.m. Wednesday, December 6th, at Irving Berlin's Holiday Inn, Lakewood Center for the Arts, 368 South State Street, Lake Oswego, Perry Thorsell and Friends, Wednesday through Saturday, 7.30 p.m., Sunday, 2 p.m. Thursday, December 7th, at the Jack London Review, 529 Southwest 4th Avenue, Mel Brown B3 Organ Group, 8 p.m. Friday, December 8th, at De Fuego Grill Underground in the Monarch Hotel, 12566 Southeast 93rd Avenue, Maryland Keller Quartet, 7 to 10 p.m. At Integrity Beer Hall, 6500 South Virginia Avenue, Steve Christopherson's Holiday Vocal Jam with Malia and Friends, 7 to 9.30 p.m. Saturday, December 9th, at Rivaderci, 17023 Southeast McLaughlin Boulevard, Heather Kaiser Quartet featuring Steve Christopherson, 7 to 9 p.m. At Vino Veritas, 7835 Southeast Stark Street in Montevilla, Cheryl Alex Duo Jazz Flute, 7 to 9.30 p.m. Sunday, December 10th, at Rue Claire Marketplace, 6716 Southeast Milwaukee Avenue, Paul LeBurn Vocals, Mike Horsfall Keys, noon to 2 p.m. At Clyde's Prime Rib, 5474 Northeast Sandy, Ronstein's Sunday Jam, 8 to 10.30 p.m. Stay tuned for more info on jazz in Portland and streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Thanks for listening. Enjoy Portland music. Hopewell House is a 12-bed residential care facility in southwest Portland for people on hospice looking for a home-like place to live their final days to the fullest. Residents have private rooms with outdoor views and visitors and pets are welcome. Caring for their residents with compassionate presence, their aim is to transform the way we die. Hopewell House is proud to join other local nonprofits in this year's Give Guide under the health category. More information at giveguide.org. Support for X-Ray FM comes from the Hollywood Theater, Portland's nonprofit historic movie theater, showing classic, contemporary, and cult films every night of the week. Located at Northeast Sandy Boulevard in the heart of the Hollywood District. Showtimes and event listings at hollywoodtheater.org. X-Ray FM is supported by Slingshot Lounge. Located in southeast Portland on the corner of 56th and Foster, Slingshot Lounge offers an expansive game room, scratch cocktails, and a craft kitchen with a full menu until 2 a.m. Happy hour available weekdays from 3 to 7, and brunch weekends from noon to 4. Slingshot Lounge, decentralizing Portland since 2007. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. In many parts of Iowa, wind turbines can be seen spinning above farm fields. These wind farms generate significant tax revenue for the counties where they're located. Alex Delworth of the nonprofit Center for Rural Affairs is author of a recent report on the impact of wind tax revenue in three Iowa counties, Story, Ida, and Marshall. He says the counties had various strategies for collecting and dispersing the funds, but all saw big economic benefits. 
overall, when tax revenue has allowed counties to increase funding to a number of essential services, you know, make pretty high investment infrastructure improvements and pay for like specific special projects without raising the tax burden on local community members. For example, Ida County has financed about $30 million worth of road and highway improvements. Meanwhile, the wind turbines in Marshall County have increased the tax base. Without the turbines, the property tax in their county would have increased by 22% to cover the same amount of services. So Iowa's booming wind energy industry generates a lot more than clean energy. The report shows it can also help support education, health, and infrastructure in rural counties. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Support for X-Ray FM comes from P-Town Couriers, LLC, a local bicycle food delivery company delivering to the Portland metro area in an hour or less. More information and a list of local eateries they work with can be found at pdxccc.com. Support for X-Ray FM comes from North Coast Pinball, Nahalem's Little Pinball Sanctuary, located on Highway 101 next to North Coast Mudworks. North Coast Pinball offers monthly tournaments and a selection of games from the 1970s to the present. Learn more at northcoastpinball.com. The 50th anniversary edition of Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay. Diet for a Small Planet. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. So, so uh, I, boy, we have, we have talked about a lot here so far today. I wanted, I wanted to get into uh, this issue with Vice President Harris and, and what she had to say. I, I, I was fascinated and, uh, and, and frankly, you know, pleased this morning watching uh, a, a part of the the Joe Scarborough show, you know, the Morning Joe show on MSNBC. I was just catching it as, as I was getting up. And, and it was about, they played this clip of Vice President Harris in Dubai saying that uh, we are, we're here for a two-state solution. Now this is, you know, I mean, last week Netanyahu said, no way, it's not going to happen as long as I'm prime minister. And, you know, which means that well, it's, it's, I guess it's fairly obvious what it means. It's not a good thing. And she, this is what she said. I'll, I'll just quote from her speech. She said, I, I've had a number of conversations with Arab leaders here in Dubai. The international, and by the way, she, she met with the president of Egypt. She met with the king of Jordan. She's met with a bunch of you know, high-level Arab leaders there. She says, the international community must dedicate significant resources to support short and long-term recovery in Gaza, number one. So, you know, we want to rebuild. Which now there, you've got some of the hard right in Israel, not Netanyahu explicitly, but some of some of his supporters who are basically saying, "Kick them all out, take the land." You know, uh, I, I don't know where you're going to kick them to, but uh, you know. It's, so anyhow, she's she's coming down strongly against that. Number one, number two, she says the Palestinian Authority security forces must be, in other words, the the internal police run by the Pal Palestinian Authority. Now the Palestinian Authority does not control Gaza. They control the West Bank. And these, you know, these are quite separate. Gaza is like 
you know, if, if Israel was the continental United States, obviously there's a difference in size, but if it was, Gaza would be California and the West Bank would be New England. I mean, that's, the, that's how far apart they are. They're literally on opposite sides of the country. Um, it's not that great a distance. You can drive it in a day, but that's, that's what you've got there. Um, so, and the Palestinian Authority does have its own, you know, police, and they have been maintaining peace. And in, in, in fact, the biggest issue that I'm seeing in the news, anyway, in the in the East Bank, is is this, this settler movement. These hardcore right-wing uh, Israelis who are uh, uh, claiming that God gave the entire land of Israel to uh, to Jews back 3,000 years ago, and the Palestinians are there entirely illegitimately, and they're just basically taking people's houses, destroying people's houses, provoking conflict. And uh, so, you know, she's saying no to that. She says, uh, this is the second thing she said, the Palestinian Authority security forces must be strengthened to eventually assume security responsibilities in Gaza. Until then, there must be security arrangements that are acceptable to Israel, the people of Gaza, the Palestinian Authority, and the international partners. Again, very much not what Netanyahu is saying. But what a lot of people in Israel are saying, and then she goes on, her third point, the Palestinian Authority must be revitalized. Now, it has become basically a gerontocracy, and it's been a very corrupt gerontocracy for a long time. Yasser Arafat, Arafat himself, uh, for all his you know, youthful victories and, and uh, idealism, basically became a very, very wealthy man in his old age and, and, uh, and set the tone. I mean, it was... It, it reminds me in a way of the American unions back in the 1960s, you know, when Jimmy Hoffa was stealing money from the UAW, or the Teamsters rather, and uh, uh, using it to buy, to invest in the Sun Valley land deal down in Florida that Bobby Kennedy busted him for. Um, and the, the reason why, uh, uh, why Hoffa took a suitcase of a million dollars to a meeting with Carlos Marcello and, and uh, Santo Traficante and uh, Traficante's lawyer, and Marcello, yeah, Traficante's lawyer, uh, who was at the meeting and on the record told me and Lamar about this meeting. And it's not a secret now. He wrote a book, actually, later, about a year after we interviewed him. Um, but he said that Jimmy Hoffa brought that money and said, I'll give you a million dollars if you'll assassinate Bobby Kennedy, because Bobby Kennedy was coming after him for that. And of course, uh, the Marcello famously said, or Traficante famously said, uh, if you cut off tails, if you cut off a dog's tail, it'll just turn around and bite you. If you cut off its head, it's finished. In other words, let's kill Jack instead of Bobby. But, but I digress. My point is that back then you had a lot of corruption in the unions in the United States, or at least some of the larger unions, and uh, it didn't serve them well. It didn't serve the movement well. And that corruption has been flushed out now over the past 40 years. And you've got some real heroes as heroes of the union movement. Sean Fain uh, being uh, at the top of the list, the United Auto Workers. And I'm hopeful that the Palestinian Authority can follow a similar path on the West Bank and, and be empowered to take over Gaza as well. But it's, they're not going to be able to do it without our help and without the help of the world community. And so that's what, that's what uh, Vice President Harris is talking about here. Uh, when she says, and third, in fact, I hadn't finished the sentence, she says the third point is the Palestinian Authority must be revitalized, driven by the will of the Palestinian people, which will allow them to benefit from the rule of law and a transparent, responsive government. Now, first of all, 
this is the first COP meeting, uh, I believe, or one of the first COP meetings, one of the few COP meetings that a president of the United States has not gone to. Um, instead, he sent Kamala Harris. I think that's a good thing. I want to see more of Kamala Harris on the world stage. We know Joe Biden. We know his opinions. He does a fine job. I want to see him out, you know, a lot, too. We can chew gum and we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, but I, I particularly want to see more of her because you and I both know that starting probably in the summer of next year and certainly in the fall, the thing, the thing, and I capital, capital T's in both words, the thing that the Republicans have in their back pocket that they, that you know they are going to pull out in the last three months of the election, maybe the last six months of the election, maybe even the last couple of, you know, two months, you know, like the Willie Horton ads did. Uh, this is how George Herbert Walker Bush's campaign, you know, Lee Atwater's advice did it with the Willie Horton ads back in the, the election of 1992. Pull this stuff out at the last minute. Michael Dukakis thought nobody's going to take that stuff seriously. That was a program that was started by the Republican governor before me. Everybody knows that. And so he didn't say anything. And he got, and they, and Bush ate his lunch. So what they're going to pull out of their pocket at the last minute, their version of the Willie Horton ad will be, hey, have, instead of saying, hey, have you noticed that this candidate let a black guy out of jail? It's going to be, hey, have you noticed that this candidate, Joe Biden, has a black woman as his, as his vice president? They're not going to, they're not going to campaign against Biden. They're going to campaign against Kamala Harris. And we, you know, I, I talked about this back in June. It was the, the last time I wrote about this. And I, and I stand behind it. In fact, I'm more convinced than ever of the importance of it. Uh, Nikki Haley has just in the last little bit come out and said, you know, if you're voting for Biden, you're voting for Kamala Harris, for Kamala Harris for president. Um, one of the uh, right-wing uh, groups uh, recently has come out with some very strong statements to this effect. Uh, one, of the, one of the Republican politicians, and forgive me for not remembering which, it was uh, a week or two ago, um, but you know, one, of, one of the guys in one of the high-profile Republicans in, in the House, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about you know, the, the MAGA crazies. Um, in response to a question about the, the uh, Biden administration, referenced Kamala Harris rather than Joe Biden. I mean, they're already starting. They're clearly getting ready. They understand messaging. And their message is going to be, have you noticed that she's a black woman? Have you noticed that she has a South Asian ancestry, that she's actually a, a you know, mixed race? Have you noticed that, that uh, well, that's going to be the focus of it, frankly. I mean, you know, racism, as, as uh, you know, our, our regular caller, Ron Kenyatta, talks about in his, in his newsletter, uh, over on Substack, um, uh, which you know is really worth following, um, anti-black racism in this country is so deep, is so strong. It is, it is every bit as built into our DNA as as, as are any of the 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 highfalutin phrases in the Declaration of Independence or in our Constitution, and that is going to be the the secret weapon. And I put that in scare quotes that the Republicans are going to be rolling out against the Biden-Harris ticket. They didn't do it so much in, 2016, in 2020, rather. Um, I mean, it certainly it was happening in the Facebook posts and things like that, but it wasn't quite as explicit. It's going to get explicit. And this is the problem, is that right now most Americans don't know Kamala Harris. I mean, people from California know her. They know her as the senator from, from, Cali from California. They know her as the, the attorney general for the state. They, you know, they know her history. 
um, in, in the state and in the cities. But uh, most Americans don't have any idea who she is. And this was the problem that John Kerry had in 2004 when he ran against George W. Bush. He, had, he didn't have a national profile. It's the opposite of the situation that, that George Herbert Walker Bush had. He, he was fairly well known. He was, you know, the Bush dynasty. His father had been a senator, Prescott Bush. He, was, he, he had been in Congress. He'd worked for the CIA. He'd been our trade envoy to China. He was a high-profile guy. Kamala Harris has been low profile. It's the opposite of the problem that George W. Bush had. He was the son of the former president. It's the opposite of the problem or, or the situation. It's not a problem, the, the, the benefit, really, that Trump had. Everybody in America knew who Donald Trump was. He, you know, NBC had spent millions, tens of millions of dollars, not just teaching him how to be a reality TV star, which they did. They hired coaches to train him, but making him a reality TV star. Well, nobody's done that for Kamala Harris either. And I guarantee you that when Trump picks a vice presidential candidate, and I'm assuming he's going to be the nominee, I realize it may be a, a wrong assumption, but this is, I think we have to operate on this assumption right now. It's going to be somebody who is also well-known. I don't think he's going to pick a Mike Pence. I don't think he's going to pick a, a quiet, obscure backbencher. He picked Mike Pence because he needed the religious vote. He doesn't need the religious vote anymore. He has it. They are in his pocket. They, they know that he will do whatever whatever he has to do to promote right-wing Christian nationalism in the United States. He doesn't need, you know, the, the, the white racist vote. They're never going to leave him. He could, be, he could put a, a black person on the ticket with him. He could put Tim Scott on the ticket with him, and he would not lose the white racist vote. And so, you know, the, he's, he's going to find somebody who's high profile. Kamala Harris needs to become high profile. If she doesn't, they're going to swift boat her. They're going to say, oh, let us tell you about her. They're going to do to her what they did to John Kerry. They're going to do to her what they did at the last minute to Michael Dukakis. Relatively unknowns. She has to become a known. And I think that this is the beginning of that process, and I think it's a good thing. And I was impressed by your speech as well. Love to hear your thoughts on it. I'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And finally, was the Trump White House selling pardons? I'll, I'll give you a little riff on that after the break, and then I'll be picking up your calls. Stay with us. And welcome back. Gloria in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Gloria, what's on your mind today? Well, welcome back. Thank you. I heard a great thing on uh, MSNBC. Somebody said that if you were to take a right-wing Christian to court and sue him for being a Christian, you could find no evidence <laughs> that he was such a... <laughs> I love it. I Isn't love that great? It. Yeah, let's list the file yeah, for the, the, the teachings of Jesus, and then let's list what the right-wing Christians in America are doing right now. They're not the same thing. No, there are not. You could not sue them and take them to court and put them in jail for being a Christian because there's no evidence of such a thing. Yep. Nope. Well not said. at all. And the next thing I have is, you know, women are 51% of the population, you know, because yep. of wars and rumors of wars and all that. Um, how come women don't have any protection under the uh, HIPAA law? I thought they did. We I thought no that was the basis of the Biden administration fighting back against those 19 Republican attorneys general who have demanded the abortion records of every woman in America. 
Yeah, I I hope so. I, I just feel like, um, you know, we are so divided in so many ways, and this is just another way they've made women a second-class citizen, yeah. uh, you know, taking our rights away from us and making us something that, you know, something odd. Well, but we're not odd. We're a human being. We're, we are the other half of the population. I don't get it. I yeah, just, well, I think this, it's horrible. this is going to, this is, I believe it has already become a lawsuit that the, the Republican governors are saying, no, we, we should have the power to look at any women's, uh, and, and by the way, they're, they're not just going after women and abortion, they're also going after trans people, um, and, oh, yeah. you know, in a big way. And, yep. they, and these, are, yep. these are all red state governors who are saying, we, have, yep. we should have the right to look at the records of women from California. We should have the rights to look at, at the records of women from Oregon or from New York it's State. insane. Yeah. Oh, it's... it's, no. it's no, I say no. We've got to stand up for our rights here. I, I, am, so anyway, I am with you. Thank I you, with Tom. You. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey, Tom, thank you, Gloria. Yeah. I'm going to send my, my grandson a, a bunch of your books, and I'm going to do the first ones that you did, a couple, you know, one about the light and the prophet. But uh, I think the one on democracy, he's kind of in the middle. He tells me, you know, he's centrist and all this, and mm-hmm. I'm going, oh, my God. So I'm going to send him democracy. What other one should I send him? Well, if you're trying to give somebody kind of a political introduction probably that mm-hmm. and the one on oligarchy are are, are pretty okay. strong um, cool yeah uh, all, okay. another one another one actually Gloria mm-hmm. that's a really good book is is screwed now I wrote that back in 2005 oh. um, uh-huh. you know but it's it, it it's it still stands I think as one of the better books that I've written on how how the Republican Party was corrupted by the billionaires and then how they, basically they rose up and took over and and just destroyed the American middle class. And obviously it's gotten much worse than that. I should probably yeah. do an update to it, but it's screwed is a really okay. good book. Get it. Okay. He's going to get blasted at Christmas time. <laughs> I hope he reads them. <laughs> well, good on you, Gloria. I hope so. Um, and okay. yeah, thank you so much for the call. Keep up the good work. I'll do my, I'll do my very best. Thank you. I just, I, I only have 20 seconds here until we're going to run out of time, but, uh, so, uh, I, just to wrap up my conversation about Vice President Harris, I think we all need to be responding to her being out there in a way that, that members of Congress and the White House are hearing about and that the media is hearing about. My earlier rant about the media, you know, and the yellow journalism stuff from the first hour, as I said, most newspapers have an email address for the editor or at, at, for the staff where you can send them a note and say, you know, I'd like to see more coverage of Kamala Harris. I'd like to see more coverage of global warming. I'd love to see more coverage of Ukraine. What happened to the coverage of Ukraine? Where did it go? I think these are all solid things. Anyhow, I'll be right back with uh, more of the news and your calls in just a moment. Stay tuned. Missed my opening rant today? It's usually published over at HartmanReport.com where you can read it and share it with your friends for free. Check it out, HartmanReport.com. From Los Angeles to Columbia, South Carolina, from Birmingham, Alabama to Baltimore, universal basic income programs are chalking up proof after proof of their viability. Basically, just giving people, low-income people, poor people, somewhere between $500 and $1,500 a month, no strings attached, is lifting people out of poverty, getting them back on track, getting them into solid middle-class jobs, helping their children tremendously. This works. Now, we don't have to do UBI in the United States. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national health care program. Health expenses are whacking a lot of low-income people. 
We're the only country, developed country in the world that doesn't have free college education. Education expenses are whacking people. There's a lot we could do. We can subsidize housing. We can subsidize food. We do that with food stamps. We could expand it. There's a lot we could do to, to, to benefit from this. There's a whole report about that over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. And welcome back, Richard in Bozeman, Montana. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind today? Oh, my goodness. Tom, welcome back to the show. I, I enjoyed you. your substitute teacher, Jefferson. He was really good. Um, I'm proud to be a, a subscriber and, and have read most of your books, and I, I appreciated Gloria bringing up a couple of, uh, or you bringing up titles to her. I told the screener that I wanted to ask you to comment briefly, if you could just share a few moments of your trip to Antarctica with the listeners. And then I said I'd like to also hear your comments about uh, Liz Cheney and the media swirl and um, the, of, of her new book and, yeah. and to ask you, why, how, how is it that we, I want to talk about memory, you know, it's important that we have long memory and I think our attention spans are having a trouble with short-term memory because daily it's this, uh, you know, two or three stories all day long for days. But how is it that we have a, a daughter of a, a politician who was so instrumental 20 years ago that we were pretty unhappy with? He must know. I'm talking about Richard, another Richard Cheney. Mm -hmm. He must know the insides of the Republican Party and we know ourselves. I'm going to say I'm a Democrat. I didn't know I was until, you know, although my voting would always reflect that. But but he must know. We know ourselves. Does he know who the Republicans do? The Republicans, how can they find themselves? Because to me, that's if we're going to have a continue a democracy we've they've got to find themselves you know yeah. we're talking to each other yeah. all day long i i i, I we, you know we haven't heard from dick cheney in quite a while he he uh, uh i don't know how he's doing or what he's up to um and and with regard to liz and her book uh I, we're just going to have to wait over the next couple of days as as it comes out and we find you know people start digging into it um with regard to jefferson smith i in fact i should have thanked him at the very opening of the show and thank you for giving me an opportunity richard jefferson is a uh, you know a great guy uh, i've known him for a number of years um, a great acquaintance a friend um, and uh, does marvelous fill-in work here for me and and i'm very grateful that he was able to do it and, and uh uh, you know, it's uh, it's nice being able to take a vacation and know that the show is in good hands. With regard to Antarctica, I'm going to write about that, about my experience, and and I'll I'll fill you in in more detail then. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, we we took a trip, uh, we flew down to uh, uh, Ushaya, Argentina, picked up a ship, took it down to Antarctica, spent about a week down there, um, went ashore a number of times, hung out with the penguins. Um, and uh, but the science lab was what really got me and the, the work that they're doing. Like I said, I'll be writing about that. Richard, thank you for the call. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. I got to tell you about the Trump White House selling pardons and I'll pick up your calls on the other side of this break. Stay with us. Tom Hartman Program. 
Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is Anita Hill's new book, Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. This is from Chapter 4, The Myth of the Woke Generation. On October 17th, sitting at my desk reading through some of the many stories being shared under the banner of Me Too, I felt a sense of deja vu. A similar groundswell of outrage and activism had followed the Clarence Thomas hearings in 1991, and many believed it would be a turning point that sexual harassment and assault would finally be taken seriously by society and the courts. We all hoped that the reports of long-standing abuses in Hollywood and other industries and the flood of stories they unleashed would usher in a period of reckoning. All seemed to agree. Time was up, needed to be up, for sexism and its insidious chokehold on everyone's lives. Yet despite the progress made over the past few years, it's become apparent that the reckoning that had, has materialized has in no way matched the volume of complaints. And disappointment is mounting in those who expected Me Too to be the wake-up call our government needed to address gender-based violence. The truth is I'm not surprised. History has taught me that it'll take more than mere testimony to solve the deeply embedded problem of this form of violence. The Me Too movement did accomplish something that did not exist before 2017. It broke open public conversation about the harsh reality and pervasive nature of gender-based violence. People around the globe, aided by social media and a broadened media landscape, shared stories of sexual harassment and assault that were horrific and familiar. It also prompted a more nuanced conversation about all that falls under the gender-based violence umbrella and how it creeps into our lives at an early age and follows us from place to place. No longer could one credibly claim that the abuses a few had stepped up to complain about in courts were fictitious or overblown. One of the most troubling Me Too revelations was how often and regularly young people experience gender violence. Survivors and victims of all genders described abuse that began when they were children and continued on a daily basis in our elementary, middle, and high schools, generational wave after wave. With participants of all ages, the movement made clear that gender-based violence has existed for generations in precisely the same forms as it exists today, and that it will continue to be the case until we let go of the persistent myth that one day a generation will come along that will no longer tolerate it. It won't magically disappear any more than pollution or poverty or racism or hunger or any of the other evils that are recurring features of our human experience. I remember when it was thought that the baby boomer generation would be the one who would put bias aside along with the violence prompted by prejudice and animus. We were the generation that criticized our parents for segregating housing, schools, and workplaces, and for tolerating glass ceilings and pregnancy or parental discrimination that blocked women's success. But though boomers preached love and peace, they largely ignored in intimate partner violence in our homes, sexual extortion on work sites, and sexual assault in our schools. It's no surprise that we have now seen prominent baby boomers, including actors, politicians, and journalists, exiting the scene in shame. It is true that Gen Zers and Millennials are more accepting of LGBTQ plus people, less tolerant of racism, and more likely to say that sexual harassment is a problem, according to public opinion polls. And optimists, me included, would like to believe that a new generation's thinking about differences will lead to a natural evolution of ideas and conduct in our colleges and universities, as well as our workplaces, homes, and streets. 
We cite promising surveys providing proof that a higher generation of Gen Zers and Millennials think same-sex marriage is good for society, that people ought to af avoid offending people from different backgrounds, and that online profiles that ask about a woman's gender should include op op options other than man or woman. We take comfort in statistics verifying that 91% of Gen Zers believe that everyone is equal and should be treated equally. We read articles declaring that because of these progressive attitudes, the youngest generation won't tolerate sexual harassment in our workplace. And thus, they represent our hope, hope for ending gender-based violence. So we tell ourselves that we only need to wait for them to come of age or for a change of the guard. The tipping point, where they will hold most government and workplace positions and can implement policies that reflect their progressive values. We also ignore the culture that the 20 and 30-year-olds of today grew up in and how it has shaped their thinking and behavior. Many millennials and Gen Zers may lean, lean toward liberal policies and ideas, but a significant portion of them will not and do not. A 2018 Pew poll showed that only roughly 30% of both groups approved of Trump's job performance, and nearly 40% were not convinced that racial and ethnic diversity in the United States is a good thing. Big questions are yet to be unanswered. What political and social events will shape their thinking in the future? And will progressive ideas inspire action against gender violence? Or will younger generations prioritize other causes? More than polls, online activities of teens and tweens offer us a glimpse of how much we can count on a younger generation to evolve us into a society of egalitarianism. The book is by Anita Hill. It's titled, Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. From international trade policy to immigration policy to housing, we've got all kinds of topics. The wars between Republicans and Democrats, the Republican efforts to induce fascism in the United States. A great selection of opinions will be found over at HartmanReport.com. So Vivek Ramaswamy, during the uh, first Republican debate, was laying out his vision for America. In, and by the way, he was the number two guy in the debate, according to the Washington Post in which he was arguing that we should basically do away with all of our federal agencies. Really, uh, virtually all of them. Just, just shut them down and make them go away. Uh, he's not the first person to argue this. David Koch, running on the uh, Libertarian ticket in 1980 for vice president, was arguing the same thing. He had a long list of federal agencies he wanted to shut down. This is not an uncommon thing among billionaires, and Ramaswamy is a billionaire. Uh, you know, they basically want to take America back to the 1920s before we had what they call the welfare state. And if they do so, they will turn America into a failed state. They want to make America into, into something like Haiti or Libya, and that would be a disaster. There's a whole article about it that you can read all the details. It's titled, Is Vivek Ramaswamy a Different Kind of Republican Cat? At HartmanReport.com. Check it out. that I published earlier in the week was uh, about the possibility that the, the, the Trump White House was selling pardons. And there is considerable, actually considerable evidence of this, and it's, it's growing as the day goes by. 
Um, the New York Times had a piece uh, a week and a half ago titled, A Troubling Trump Pardon and Link to the Kushners. And uh, this was about a guy named Jonathan Braun, B-R-A-U-N, who was pardoned by, by, uh, by Donald Trump. He was in his second year of a 10-year prison term for being a major big-time pot dealer, a drug dealer. But he was also, and you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of putting people in jail for being drug dealers, but this was like organized crime level stuff. But he was also a loan shark, and he was, you know, recorded on tape, like threatening people's lives, threatening to break their legs and things if they didn't pay up, and or, or that sort of thing, that kind of genre of thing. He, he said to a rabbi in uh, Staten Island, he said, I'm going to make you bleed. That's the specific quote. And uh, it looks like, according to Noel Dunphy, who was a former employee of Rudy Giuliani, that uh, Giuliani was hustling pardons for $2 million a pop. $1 million to go to Giuliani, $1 million to go to Trump. In fact, uh, according to a lawsuit that she filed under oath before a court, uh, she said uh, Giuliani asked if she knew anyone in need of a pardon, telling her that he was selling pardons for $2 million, which he and President Trump would split. Now, I just said a million to each one. I'll bet, actually, it doesn't say that. It says they would split it. So I'll bet the split was more like Donald said, hey, Rudy, everyone you can sell, you can keep $10,000, and I get the other, you know, $1.999 million. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the split was, right? I don't think anybody knows what the split was, but it's fairly clear. Uh, Philip Bump in the Washington Post earlier this year writing, quote, the allegation that Giuliani was offering pardons for $2 million has been made before. In January 2021, shortly before Trump left office, the New York Times reported the former CIA officer John Kiriakou had been, quote, told that Mr. Trump's personal lawyer Giuliani could help him secure a pardon for two million bucks, end quote. Kiriakou refused to pay the two million, and Trump refused to pardon him. I, you know, it, it, it should wake us up. If you, if you want the details, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to your calls now, but uh, go over to HartmanReport.com. It's still on the front page. It's titled, Was the Trump White House Selling Pardons? And uh, it's not just a, a fascinating article to read. It's a good article, I think, to share with people who might have uh, uh, any inclination to understand or believe how insanely corrupt the, the Trump administration was. So let's pick up your calls here. Francis in Waterbury, Connecticut. Hey, Francis, what's up? Oh, yeah, listen, um, I was just calling before about when you were talking about news. Yeah. You know, how it used to be like, uh, you know, the more realistic news. I kind of thought about, do you remember a TV show called WKRP in Cincinnati? Uh, you mean the radio station? The KP, oh, KPRP? Yeah, the radio station. Yeah. I, I, you know, right. I never watched it because during the time that show was on the air, Louise and I didn't have a, a TV. For the 18 years that our kids were growing up, we didn't have a TV in our house. So I never saw it, but I know what you're talking about. Well, see, the thing is, you had Les Nesmith and the news. And he would start his news broadcast giving the hog reports. And everybody's there like, Les, Les, what are you doing? Put something on there people are going to want to listen to, right? Mm -hmm. And then I said, well, he was in an area where he had a lot of pig farmers. So these people, the hog reports were very important. It decided sure. how they're going to run their farm for the rest of the day. And that just basically says most of the time, real news is pretty boring. I mean, it, yep. it's there to get so you can make a decision on how your life's going to go. Which always gets to me about why they still listen to Trump. I mean, he keeps lying. I mean, he's saying basically, don't listen to me. I mean, I lie. I, my talk has no value to you whatsoever. 
But except that they believe these things. I mean, he doesn't qualify his statements like that, and they actually believe him. But I get it. I, you know, and, and I get it that the news is boring. And in fact, when we started this show um, in, in Vermont, um, uh, Rama, Rama uh, Snyder was my uh, first producer, and he helped us uh, find a radio station to start out on. And it was a little station in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, Bob Rowe was the program director. And he gave us two hours on a Saturday morning. And, uh, and, and I followed the swap and shop. And so half the calls that I got would be from people saying, is that John Deere 410 still available? You know, so, but yeah, I know. It's important stuff to know, you know? Yeah, I know about local radio. There you go. Francis, I got to move along, but thanks for the call. I, your points are well taken. Grant, never at Washington. Hey, Grant, what's on your mind today? Grant, listening on KBCS in Everett, Washington. Grant going once. Going twice. Rich in Indianapolis, Indiana. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? Hey, John, thanks. When you were sharing titles and you recommended Screwed, I immediately thought about a book, and I apologize for not knowing the author, but I have a good grasp of the title. The Party's Over, and I remember it from a Bill Moyers episode on PBS, and the title went, The Party's Over, How the Middle Class Got Screwed, The Republicans Went Crazy, and the Democrats Became Useless. And yeah. this was written by a budget office guy. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was uh, uh, Richard Heinberg, I believe. Hang on just a minute. Let me just check. I've got the... Uh... Yeah, it was Richard Those Heinberg. Really... And uh, really the party's over one. oil war and the fate of... Oh, no, that's the, the fate of industrial society. That's the wrong party's over book. Hang on just a minute. Let me get the right one here. How the right hijacked. Yeah. Oh, Charlie Crist. He's got a book, How the Are Extreme Right Hijacked the GOP and I Became a Democrat. I don't think that's the one you're talking about either. No, that's, that's not it either. Um, no, there's, bummer. Oh, yeah. bummer. There's and a, no, bunch, a of, bunch of them. The <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Well, this one, this one was about somebody on the inside mm -hmm. uh, watching how stuff happened. And it was basically precisely what your screw was about. Yeah. Precisely. And so it's from the inside looking deeper. So for that. But I was, as you were talking about Dick Cheney, uh, and uh, then you also had begun with uh, Israel's right wing saying, kick them all out and take the land. Dick Cheney said, take the oil and stay forever. You know? Yeah. I mean, we're, oh, yeah. we're, I know. we're and, looking at a, a and perspective he, he, that... He also said, you know, uh, Iraq has the world's second largest oil reserves, 10% of the world's yeah. known oil. And that didn't get... Yeah. By the way, the book is by Mike Lofgren, and it's titled The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted, if that's the book you're talking about. There you go. Yeah. Yes, it is. That is the one. Mike, Mike Lofgren. Lofgren. Yeah. Folks would do well. Um, I wanted to talk about the uh, Israeli peace movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a fellow who wrote a book, War Against the People. His name is Jeffrey Halper, H-A-L-P-E-R. Okay. And the title, War Against the People... Israel, the Palestinians, and global pacification. Hmm. And he is at something called International Campaign Against House Demolition.org. Uh, for folks who don't have a good connection, it's, uh, let's see, it's, it's just the first, first initials of those words. Yeah, no, uh, I, I, I get it all, Rich. What's your point? Okay, I want, I want people to him. know that that's there okay. and, and use him as a resource. All right. And Henry Kissinger died, and I wanted to make the observation that without Henry Kissinger, there would have been no Operation Phoenix, no Rolling Thunder, no Pol Pot, no vets exposed to Agent Orange. 
Without Henry Kissinger, there would have been no Otter Scorzani, uh, the the SS Colonel uh, out of uh, Operation Paperclip, uh, Rogue's Intelligence, uh, being the bodyguard. No Pinochet. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and Pinochet. And Victor Yara would be alive. Yeah. Uh, there wouldn't have been dirty wars. And, and at least uh, 22,000 American soldiers would still be alive. Not to mention yeah. a million Vietnamese and, and a million Cambodians and Laotians. Yes. And, no, the and guy was one of the there, one of history's great Watergate. war criminals and mass murderers, Henry Kissinger. Watergate wouldn't have happened. He told Nixon, "You must what you must wiretap your enemies." Yeah, and he was coming from this background of espionage. He had been CIA Marshall Plan tool, and that's where he picked up all this stuff. And you know. Madame Chanel never would have had a shot. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm guessing know, Jefferson talked if, about it while I was gone. If if Henry Kissinger hadn't been there and been given that uh, de facto Nobel, Bob Dylan would have accepted his Nobel. I'm sure of it. Yeah. 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 He uh, Henry Kissinger okay, really dirtied the prize. <laughs> prize. Yeah. He, thank you, Rich. Good to hear from mess. you. Good talking to you. Thank you, Greg in Gastonia, North Carolina. Hey, Greg, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, I hear you talking about Republican billionaires, but I just looked up the 2022 donations of the top 100. 51 were Democrats. Yeah, you're, you're looking at you're looking at donations to the parties, and you're right. Uh, the the and and if you look at those numbers, they're relatively inconsequential numbers. I mean, we're talking a couple hundred million dollars in, in aggregate over. Uh, you know, those are the official contributions to the well, parties. Well, but if you start looking at the dark money organizations. The right-wing dark money, there's, there's a, an empire, I mean, a multi-billion dollar empire of right-wing dark money the, organizations. Who the, the, who the, but, but, but the State Policy 14, Network, ALEC, you've got, I mean, there's no shortage of them. In fact, I encourage you, Greg, if, you're, if, you've, if you have a genuine interest in no, this, as opposed to trying question? to just, just you know, argue with me, I, I would encourage you to read Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money. I'm not arguing with you, Tom. I'm just... Can, can, why do you always talk over me when I try to ask you a question? That's your tactic. You talk over me. I try to give you facts I'm reading off here, and you talk over me. That's, that's how you talk show host, Greg. The, this is what people do when they have conversations. They well, interrupt no, no, each other from time to time, particularly when I they try to filibuster. Greg, if, if you're going to try and filibuster me, I will talk over you, and then I'll end the conversation. Ben in Buffalo, New York. Hey, Ben, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Good to have you back. Thank you. Uh, always learn quite a bit from you. I wanted to bring you and the listeners a little bit of uh, optimism that I've noticed. Um, I'm a, a truck driver, so I get all over the country mm -hmm. quite a bit. And compared to a few years ago, I am seeing less and less of uh, the mega bumper stickers, flags, uh, what have you, that I see. And I go through some very red parts of the country. Yeah. So, you know, part of that, though, Ben, might, to bring that. might just be yeah. that it's been it's been three years since there was a campaign going on. Um, the Demo the you know, Trump has not sewn up the Republican nomination. So local Republican offices are not passing out Trump bumper stickers. You probably have to go online to get them. I'm guessing that will probably uh, change quite consequentially about the middle of next year. OK, I was I was hoping that maybe they're starting to notice uh how uh, dangerous he would be for our country if he got reelected. I think some are. I think some are. <laughs> yeah. 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 Are you are you seeing, I mean, in some cases, it wasn't, you know, like bumper stickers and things that are easily removed from your car, but it was like 
you know, people having giant Trump flags and signs on the sides of barns and things. And have you noticed a yeah, change in those I, kind I of things? I used to see a lot of that. I, I, I've noticed a change in that. Not not seeing it as much. Right. You know. Well, that's a good so, sign. So I think that's good. Why, do you, I don't do know you, if they're necessarily going towards Democrats, but yeah. if they're getting away from Trump, that's a start. Do you listen to uh, Trucker CB Radio, Ben? Uh, I actually don't have a CB. I just listen to you on the XM radio, though. Okay, all right, I great. think you're doing a great, great job. Okay, thanks a lot, Ben. Good talking to you. Uh, it's 48 minutes past the hour. I'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman Program, helping you win the water cooler wars. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be right back with more of your calls. Stay tuned. And welcome back, Sharice in Corona, California. Hey, Sharice, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. First, I want to say I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, and well, I just want you to know you live in one of my favorite cities. I've lived in Portland. Them white folks out there is tame, like my mom would say. I really like <laughs> Portland. Thank you. <laughs> and, Step um, one. I, I, <laughs> no, I mean tame in a good way. I feel I, I do, too. I'm in yeah. the city. I, I, I get it. Um, check this out. I had an epiphany uh, today about how to just to take care of elderly people. I mean, or people that become disabled uh, due to long-term illness. Mm -hmm. And also, I think it might kill two birds with one stone. What about having the people who are going to medical school, like us, pay for them to go to medical school, and in return, while they're once they get to a certain level of education? help take care of elder people or people who just need somebody to, to be in their house and help them, you know what I mean, help mm. them with the, the minor care that they need. And, that, and in exchange, they would get free education. And it would help us get, I mean, help us have more nurses, help us have more doctors, and they would also get practice before they started their practices. You know what I mean? I do. Kind and of I, like a medical internship. Yeah, and I think you're on to something here, Sharice. The, the, uh, a number of states offer programs to students who go to in-state medical schools that the state will forgive or pay back part of their, and in some cases, much of their uh, tuition if they work in the state for a period of time. And I, I believe I have a friend who's a, a doc in Michigan, and I believe in Michigan it's five years you have to work in a, in a low-income area after, you know, after you get your MD, um, and then they pay off your tuition. Now, don't quote me on that. I mean, this is a multi-year-old memory. Um, but I do know that multiple states have programs like that. But they're, they're all geared toward after you get your degree. And the re reason why is because medical school is so intense that um, it's really difficult to work a part-time job, even if that's, you know, being a care, well, I shouldn't say even if, because being a caretaker can be a very intense job, depending on who you're taking care of, you know. Um, you get these people with Alzheimer's and things like that. Uh, you know, I saw this with my, my mother. My brother took her in, and um, uh, boy, it's, it's tough stuff. So that would be really hard when you're in medical school, but I think your, your concept is absolutely solid. I'd love to see a federal program. Maybe there's one I don't know about, but I'd love to see a, a federal program like that. Or we should do like other countries do. I mean, you know, a lot of countries actually pay people to go to medical school. 
Um, right? Oh, my God. What, what, what a nice thing that would be. Yeah. Just so you know, I got an engineering degree for free because I'm disabled, and there's a federal program that lets well, disabled, that pays for disabled people to do that. And as a result, I've worked on a lot of federal projects since then to kind of pay my country back for mm-hmm. allowing me to go to college free. And I just wanted to say one more thing about what you said about Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. I predicted that she would be uh, in, in the presidential office years ago because I'm a black woman. And if this country would listen to black women, we are like the Jiminy Cricket of yep. this nation. We are always right. We always vote in the way that's the best interest for the country. And that's we true. would be darn lucky if she was president. If a black woman was in charge, America would be a lot better off than it is now. So, and that's it. Have I, a nice I, you know, I, I agree with you, Sharice, and I, I think that's, that's <laughs> very, very well said. Um, I, in fact, I can't add anything to it. Sharice, thank you for the call. Uh, spot on. And, and, and we do need more physicians. And it's crazy that, uh, you know, in, well, when I was in Argentina, Louise and I stopped in Buenos Aires for one day on our way to, to, to uh, uh, Antarctica. And, uh, you know, I, I, we spent a few hours with a guy who showed us around town. And, and he said, they pay you. It's free. It's 100% free to go to medical school in Argentina. 100% free. We'll be right back. Hey, thanks so much for sharing our program and for reaching out to our stations and sponsors and letting them know that you're listening. It really means a lot to us. So a lot of people are wondering, why is it in America that we can't have nice things? Why don't we have, you know, the same things every other democracy has. Every other democracy in the world has a national health care system of some form, and everybody is covered. We don't. We've got 27 million un- uninsured people and over 100 million underinsured people. Why is that? Why is it that every other country in the world offers college education very inexpensively, if not for free? And for here, you go to debt. Why is it that we've got our public schools crumbling and other, other countries are doing well? Why is it that we've got Medicare being taken apart by this Medicare Advantage scam and nobody will do anything about it? Well, it turns out the reason why has, it boils down to one thing, one Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, legalizing the bribery of our politicians. There's a whole rant about this over at, at uh, HartmanReport.com. Uh, I think you're, you're going to find it very, very useful. Check it out. Welcome back. Picking up your calls here, Jim in Babcock, Babcock Ranch, Florida. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Hey, well, half the time I'm up in Alaska, uh, uh, Haines, Alaska, mm-hmm. and I'm a KHNS DJ. Oh, and cool. I heard you talking about being a disc jockey. And, okay, so up in Alaska, we get your program between 8 and 11 in the morning. Mm-hmm. My show goes on at 1 o'clock. I took cue points for your show. Well, you know, sometimes. But I would... I would uh, work, the, the songs that I played would be kind of in reference to, uh, you know, various things that you brought up. And uh, so, you know, guys like Harry Chapin and Johnny Cash. Yeah. I would always play Johnny Cash's Truth, remember? Uh, yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's always crap, you know. Yeah. But uh, just just like you talked about. I love it, Jim. We had to, even now, we have, of course, NPR stations are governed probably a little different than the regular and the regular stations mm-hmm. are probably well. Yeah, they but, do have uh, they do have uh, standards that are, that they fairly rigorously endorse or uh, 
apply or whatever and enforce, I guess is the word I'm looking for. But I, I, yeah. I love, you know, I loved doing music. I, for a year on WVIC in Lansing, Michigan, I did an all night progressive rock show. And, and I would do long political rants between songs because it was album cuts, you know, so I'd have like a 12 minute album cut and then I'd just riff about it for a while. And then, you know, and that was kind of where I started in talk radio, I guess. Um, and, and in fact, that got you know, me fired. Yeah. <laughs> that was the only, the only job I've ever been fired from in my life um, because I, I played almost, Dick Gregory <laughs> on the air. That almost got me fired too, by the way. Oh yeah? Because I would, they said I was talking too much. I was making I yeah. was, I was, of course it's public radio, you know, yeah, a I little bit it. limited, but I, I would, I would, I would meld on, 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 I was on the edge. Yeah. Back, and back said, before we moved to DC, this, this is like, you know, 10 years ago, a little more than 10 years ago. Um, I had pitched to, uh, to clear channel, actually a, a show that was music and talk where, you know, I do it like an hour show that was music after this show. And of course, nobody had any interest in it. <laughs> but I thought it'd be fun yeah. to do, you know, flashback to the day. Jim, thanks for the call. Nice to hear from a fellow DJ. Good talking to you. Uh, it, it, oh, it's the top of the. We're out of out of show here. I'm sorry. We hit the end of the runway, and uh, time to lift off, uh, or whoever's following me to lift off. So uh, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. And that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. local newspapers are being merged, purged, shrunk, shut down, and looted by Wall Street profiteers. Yet, there's good news. In the towns those media vultures are torching, a phoenix is rising. Hundreds of determined locals, often led by people of color, are finding new ways to pay for and revive top-quality local journalism. For example, the Ferndale Enterprise moved to an old Victorian home, renting upstairs rooms to vacationers to subsidize the paper. Also, while aloof Wall Street owners have no connection to us or our towns, the scrappy new community papers are stressing their grassroots connection by moving into friendlier, more central, street-level spaces such as public libraries and community centers so that regular people can see them and have direct access to their reporters and editors. Then there's the editor of the Sahan Journal in Minneapolis, who moves his weekly editorial meeting to the offices of various grassroots groups so their members can help shape the paper's coverage. And in Marfa, Texas, the Big Ben Sentinel is literally serving the public, not only with a good weekly, but also with the Sentinel, a combo coffee shop, cozy bar, cafe, event space, and hangout for locals to meet and greet. In ways big and small, dedicated local journalists are experimenting with funding, structure, staffing, etc. to produce the news that democracy requires. Note to Wall Street vultures, these newspaper ventures aren't interested in scaling up to maximize investor profits. As they know, it was corporate cost-cutting, consolidation, and scaling that got us into today's mess of journalistic collapse. And, unlike the Wall Street model, their success is not measured simply by financial return, but also by how they do at keeping